South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning across South Texas in the Hill Country and uh, wherever you happen to be listening on the Internet. And anyway, it's, uh, it's a warm morning out there, but, you know, this is we're well into July now. What is this? I believe the 8th of the month. So, uh... Kind of what we need to expect. I sure wish we'd see a little bit more widespread rainfall. And we did have a couple of days that uh, the temperatures were much more moderate. But it's just a hot, hot summertime. But, you know, we're looking forward to fall. The fall vegetable plants just started coming in this week. Uh, fall tomatoes and things like that. So gardeners are always looking a few months ahead and working hard in the garden every day in the meantime but uh it's i don't know it's a it's a busy season but it's a good season lots of things to talk about understand ethan's uh waiting to talk and he will be up first but i call this the smart people's half hour i don't have to take a commercial break till six o'clock so we've got time to talk in depth about uh, an issue if you've got something going on you'd like to like to discuss or Gosh, an observation or just about anything, you know the number, 210-599-5555. And uh tell you what, it's a lot easier normally to get through at this time of the morning than it will be a little bit later in the show when you'll tend to have a uh, little bit longer wait times and a little bit more trouble getting through on the phone line. So anyway, you don't even have to get out of bed, you lucky people. You can just roll over and dial, you know the number, 210-599-5555. And I don't like keeping people waiting, so let's just get started this morning, Don. Uh, good morning, Ethan. Good morning, uh, Bob. I have a um, couple of uh, inquiries here this morning. The first one is going to be on a blueberry um, little tree or, or bush, what have you. Um, I'm having a little issue with it. Um, I had gotten it at HEB, and it was already probably about um, about two foot. Okay. Kind of like that was sparse. What's happening is my leaves are turning brown and falling off. However, I have some new leaf growth uh, near the base. I transplanted it into a bigger pot. The pot's probably um, a it's, it's a it's a bigger one. At least like probably five gallons or something like that. I'm, I'm unsure. Uh-huh. The leaves are turning brown uh-huh. and they're falling off. Um, is this an ornamental blueberry, what they call a Japanese blueberry, or is this one of the blueberries that actually produces edible fruit? Edible fruit. Okay. Um, it probably is a water issue at some time, and it might very well be even before you got the plant. It probably dried out a bit. And uh, it it's these are some of the old leaves on the plant, correct? Some of the oldest leaves on the plant, not the new ones out at the tip of the branches? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, First of all, in the future, don't rush to repot. Um, Most plants are much happier if they are fairly root-bound. And when you take a smaller plant and put it into a bigger pot, it's much more difficult to maintain an even moisture level in the pot. It takes until the, the water... In a in an established plant, the water that you put on it doesn't evaporate. Uh, it gets taken up by the plant and released through the leaves in a process we call transpiration. When you take a plant that already probably has some compromised roots because it's been at HEB, among other things, put it into a bigger pot, uh, the drying out becomes even more, uh, more of an issue. It becomes even more uneven. So... 
A uh, couple of things I would suggest. Uh, next time you water it, in fact, probably oh every every two or three waterings for the next couple of months, add a little bit of, uh, there are two products that I'd like you to add to the water. One of them is called Garrett Juice, which you can get at just about any good nursery. The other is called Super Thrive, which looks like, uh, the packaging looks like snake oil. It's a little brown bottle with a bright yellow label. But that stuff is the most amazing material I've ever seen. Must have a lot of vitamin B in it because that's what it smells like. But uh, it will help get your root system back in good shape and get it expanding as much as possible. So um, the, the watering, though, you're going to have to be very, very careful. Always feel right at the base of the plant, not out toward the edge of the pot, but right at the base of the plant. When that's dry, half a knuckle deep, uh, then it's time to water again. And you'll never put too much water on at any one time. When you water, you should water really thoroughly, but then don't water again until the soil is dry to the proper point. I always tell people there's no such thing as overwatering, but there is watering too often. So soak it when you water it, like say about every other watering from now on for the next couple of months. Uh, add the Super Thrive, add the Garrett Juice, and your plant should come along just fine for you. Again, having a few old leaves drop is not at all uncommon. The newest growth on the plant is what tells you what kind of shape the plant's in right now. And as long as that growth is looking good, uh, then you probably don't have anything health-wise uh, really to worry about with the plant. Now, this plant doesn't want hot afternoon San Antonio sun. It uh, would like to be in a place to get sun in the morning shade in the afternoon if you decide to put it into the ground at some point you want to really enrich the soil with lots and lots of compost uh, blueberries are plants that like a soil that tends more toward the acidic side and uh, that's that's what you get by adding lots of compost compost is breaking down compost is producing humic acids so um, I don't know that's just sort of growing blueberries 101 but uh, just just put it out of your mind that plants need to be repotted and that it helps them. Many times, in fact, probably most times, repotting a plant does it more damage than it does good unless the plant was already really root-bound. So um, in the future, let it stay in that pot till at least it gets acclimated till it really starts to fill that pot out with roots uh, before you move it into a bigger pot. When I'm watering, Bob... Um... I, I guess I'm making a little mistake here, perhaps. Um, I have um, a tray, like a long kind of uh, rectangular tray under the pot that has a probably about a quarter inch depth on it, and I have the pot in there. And uh -huh. I had have it. I had been having it soak up the um, water from the bottom of the pot after had having had um, uh, drilled some holes, some bigger holes in there to soak up the soil. Am I better off watering at the base from the top or having it soak up from the bottom? I would do a combination of both, Ethan. I'd I would water it from the top because the the roots on that plant anywhere aren't anywhere near the bottom of the pot oh, yet, yeah. and okay. the plants you know not going to wick that water up quite as effectively. So what I would do is water it from the top, but uh, when the you know water runs through and starts to fill the saucer, 
Let it stand in that water for a couple of hours before you empty the saucer. Don't let it stay an extended period of time, but water from the top so that you're getting the water to the roots of the plant area that really needs it. But then let it let it sit for an hour or two just to be sure it's taken up enough water to thoroughly saturate the soil and um, then pour it off and, you know, go on with, uh, with life as usual. Very good. Um... My uh, next question is going to be on, uh, and, and, and I kind of know your, your uh, or the uh, consensus uh, towards the uh, growing avocados. Uh, I'm in the, the Divine area, um, mm-hmm. and um, I have, and it's so funny. Okay? I, I've watched YouTube videos on stuff even before because I, I wanted to, to try my hand at uh, seeing absolutely. If I, and I, yeah. I know that they're, that they're a, a lengthy process. However, I had I, I had gotten to a process after breakfast, lunch, or dinner, what have you. Um, I would take the pits and just put them in, in a pot in the soil, and I had totally forgot about them. And uh, this was probably about uh, a few months back. I had no, I was um, reamending, I was collecting on my soil, I was reamending, and um, and I was like, oh, what's this? And I turned out it was an avocado um, growing out there. And I thought that was so funny because like there, there's all these um, tricks and tips that people have on, on stuff. And I was like, man, I guess you just got to put it in the soil and forget about it for a little while. <laughs> and, and I, I thought that was really funny. Um, yeah. But I have it in a, in a shallower um, pot. That's where it, it was sprouted from. And, and I know that it's going to outgrow that. And um, I, I, uh, I, I don't know, or I guess I'm looking for um, maybe like a win because it, it looks totally different than, than most of the ones that I've seen uh, on sure. the Internet and stuff right. like that. It's like short, and uh, there, there's three sprouts uh, or two sprouts out of um, one pit, and the leaves are really healthy. They're, they're mm-hmm. wide, and they're deep green, and, um, and there's uh, probably close to um, over a, a dozen of those big leaves in it, and it's no more than um, like a foot, maybe two foot. Okay. Okay. No, 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 not too, but about a foot. So it's like it's short and wide, uh-huh. um, and instead of and uh, opposed to what or compared to what I've seen, which is usually you know the stretch, um, you know, uh, tall and uh, and kind of narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that an issue or the, well, what's in my head is is, is um I, I kind of want to try to and I'm almost sure this is even possible with with the, these avocados. Avocados is um almost do a uh, like a not a stress training, but kind of make it wider and um, <laughs> okay. yeah, it's, 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 it's so tall. And, and this is like I said, this is my first time. I'm just trying to uh, see. If I, I've been able to keep it alive, and um, I think it's what like seven years, something like that, five years. Mm-hmm. So they um, they bear fruit, which um, I'm going to hold myself to. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing um, it's doing well, but but I know that I'm I'm going to need to move it soon. Well, um, when you look at the pot can you still see the pit of the avocado that you planted you're sure that's what's coming up yes sir okay because i've seen more than once when somebody did that and then put the pot outside and the squirrel went and buried a walnut or something in there and and (laughs) it sprouted and somebody thought oh that's a weird looking avocado and it's because it wasn't an avocado at all but um a couple of things you're exactly right about you're going to have a long wait because it has to go through a maturing process before it will be able to bloom and reproduce but you're a patient guy so that's uh, that's fine um, the other thing about growing a store-bought avocado uh, in effect is that 
this is not an especially cold hardy avocado this is a california avocado and you know like like much of california the plants are kind of wimpy they like absolutely perfect growing conditions and uh anytime the weather gets close to freezing you're going to have to protect this plant now you're in divine you are where you know, there used to be a fella had a business actually called uh, Divine Avocados, but what he was growing and producing very successfully were some of the Mexican varieties, the Joys, the uh, there are a bunch of different ones, which are more cold hardy and which can be planted in the ground and then just covered if it gets too cold. But your avocado tree is probably going to spend most of its life, you know, in either in a pot that can be moved in when it gets really cold or in a spot where you can, in effect, build a greenhouse over it for the winter months. So uh, just be aware that what you have is not going to be as cold-hardy as some of the ones you've probably seen and read about. Uh, As far as repotting, don't be in any hurry. Like I say, to me, there are only two times that a plant really should be repotted. One is when the plant gets too big, it's for you to keep the pot upright, that it just keeps falling over or blowing over or whatever. You might want to put it in a bigger pot and a heavier pot. The second time is when it is drying out so quickly that you can't keep it watered because the more root-bound a plant becomes, the faster it dries out. And until you get to the point that you're having to water it every day, it's probably going to be much happier in a small pot than in a large pot. And like I say, a lot of people either kill plants or do them a great disservice by repotting them on a regular basis when, in effect, other than a shade tree, virtually every plant in the world is going to be happier when it is at least root-bound to some extent. Now, when it does get to that point, when it needs to be repotted, just good potting soil is fine. But don't be rushing to put it into a bigger pot. You're you're not doing the plant any favor, and you're going to make it harder to maintain effectively. Okay, very good, very good. Um, fulvic acid and, uh, and worm castings, can I make a tea out of that? You certainly can. Um, uh, no reason not to. You would use it immediately. It's not something you can store or it will um, go anaerobic and become very unpleasant very quickly. I, I Again, I don't know that you gain a whole lot um, with the worm castings, especially over just, you know, putting them on the surface of the soil as a mulch. But you can certainly do better. You can put them in a strainer bag. Uh, make your tea and then put the worm castings in the garden or somewhere else. But uh, fulvic acids and humic acids are two of the just magical things that are produced by the microbes in good compost. So um, it'll benefit every plant you grow. Yeah, I bought a um, a, I bought some essential oils and stuff like that, and um, and uh, you know, use them topically for what you know, just whatever, um, you know, just different things and. Um, uh, I saw the fulvic acid there, and I listened to a couple podcasts, and um, and something about fulvic acid um, being uh, unable to fl- be flushed out or something like that. Or does that ring any type of bells or anything like that? Well, it's, yes it's, and it's, no. It not any more so than any other product which contains its nutrients in something we call a cat- uh, cationic form. Um, those things are bound through what we call cation exchange 
uh, to products in the soil. But uh, fulvic acid is no more special than humic acid, or for that matter, for any good or than any good organic fertilizer. Um, it's certainly good for the soil. It's uh, but it's not a complete fertilizer by any means. It's one of uh, one of things that are frequently added to good liquid fertilizers in small quantity. Like I say, humic acids are more commonly used, but fulvic acid is in effect, uh, oh, it's in the same family as humic acids, I guess we would put it that way. It's not magical, but humic acids are very definitely natural products produced in healthy soils that help keep the soil toward the acidic side, which can be important for your blueberry. Uh, Avocado didn't really care one way or the other, but uh, certainly good stuff, but it's not magic. Yeah, um, I um, was looking into um, you know low cost, um, you know, high quality uh, nutrition for my soils and stuff like that, and um, I had come across um, uh, looking into um, uh, feeds like um, like say at Morales, um, they have like the low alfalfa cubes and stuff like that. Um, I was going to kind of break those down. Uh, do, do <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, Ethan, but you're kind of reinventing the wheel, and yeah. you know it's you're not gonna you're not going to be able to put the variety of nutrients into a homemade product uh, that somebody like Stuart Frankie's going to be able to put into one of his products because he makes millions of gallons of it and all, but you're certainly going to create a good material that's going to help your plants grow. But if you think you're going to save a lot of money, you're deluding yourself. And if you think what you get is going to be better than a good organic fertilizer, it's not. I mean, it's fun to do. It's fun to experiment. But, um, you know, a lot of things that people start out thinking are going to be money savers end up costing them three times as much in the long run. Okay, yeah, no, I, 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 I totally understand that. Um, I have um, a bunch of stickers that um, are popping up in my uh, front and backyard, and uh, should I spray and pull them or just pull them? Pull them like, where uh, you can. Pull them where you can and put some compost over the area this fall as soon as it cools off. The humic acids and other things in the compost act as a natural pre-emergent. Uh, you don't want to put fresh compost on while it's still this hot. But uh, pull what you can. You're never going to get them all. You're still going to have plenty of seeds. But I tell you, a half an inch compost is uh, the best pre-emergent for sticker bursts I've ever found. Can I just put the compost over the stickers? Yeah, absolutely. I did like that on a, on what? Like without pulling them? Uh, you can. Um, it will work, you know better if it would be easier to walk through and uh all if you get rid of the burrs but uh uh it's not absolutely not absolutely mandatory listen uh this has been a good conversation we've got a couple other people waiting so uh you get out and have a great weekend and we're going to move forward and talk to gloria kim will be up next uh good morning gloria good morning good morning hi bob are you having a good day <laughs> Oh, it's uh, it's it's a good morning. It's a, a warm morning out there, but you know, other than having to get up at three o'clock in the morning, I, I have no complaints. It's uh, but anyway, I get to talk to the nicest people in South Texas and elsewhere. So uh, wouldn't be here if I didn't enjoy doing it. I'm an early riser too. 
However, I'm not going to talk too long. I'm just going to be brief because uh, you already answered my questions, but I wasn't listening. I get sometimes I get so uh, you know in tune with what you're saying that I'm not writing down, uh, you know some some of the things that I should have written down. But <laughs> That's I all right. Had, but I had questions regarding a. Uh, 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 um, let me see, recommendations to buy a, a, a water hose. And mm-hmm. you gave me the name of Flexigen. Right. And and I went to the computer to find it because it's hard to find it here in, in San Antonio. And mm-hmm. uh, th- there were once, there were once some of the uh, pe- people that are selling them uh, are like Gilmore, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Uh, Gilmore and, makes one. Gilmore is actually the manufacturer of what they call the Flexigen hose. They apparently oh. bought the original company. So, um, the, and I was looking at, you know, hoses, uh, you know, on, on our floor the other day and, and reading the, the tags on it to be, just to be sure I fully understood it. But Gilmore is, uh, the company. Flexigen is one of the brands that they produce. And in my opinion, it's still for the money. It's still the best one out there. They're not cheap. But they will last a long time, and they have fewer problems kinking than uh, just any other hose that I've used. That is wonderful, and that's what I'm I'm looking for. I, I the price is no issue because you know you spend more time with the with a dinky little hose, you know, <laughs> getting back and forth, and I'm kinking it, you know. Well, there and, there are two problems that over the years, uh, one friend bought a couple of very long ones, and the, about the same time he got a new puppy. And uh, his new puppy totally destroyed his two new hoses. Another friend got one, left it in tall grass, and ran over it with the lawnmower. So they're not indestructible, but you take care of them, and they'll take care of you for a lot of years to come, Gloria. Exactly. And you gave me some of the uh, um, you gave me some of the uh, the dimensions, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word, you know, like uh, the the well, you didn't go deep into it, but what well, do I need to know? I well, there's the the yeah the uh, it, a little bit depends on how long the hose is going to be. You'll find hoses mm-hmm. come like three eighths inch, half inch, five eighths inch, three quarters inches, and bigger than that. You don't want to fool with. But mm-hmm. the longer the hose is, there's something called the coefficient of friction. Firemen fight play with their need to know this all the time when they're fighting fires. Mm-hmm. But the longer the hose is, the less water comes out of the far end or it comes out with less force so um, I would never get a hose smaller than half an inch um, the, a good size for most people is going to be a 5 8 inch diameter hose uh, if you want a high volume of water if you have a lot of watering to do three quarters of an inch is uh, not bad it uh, will give you the greatest volume of water but generally for a household hose uh, half an inch is too small Three quarters may be a little bit bigger than you need, so I probably would settle for a five-eighths inch hose. That's just the diameter of it, and it should certainly be somewhere on the package. Okay, good. And uh, that's all I need to know is, as far as uh, the hose is concerned, right? Yes, um, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Now, okay. uh, you know, I hoses are made with a lot of different chemicals involved in making the hose, and even though as kids we all drank out of the hose and we still lived uh, they probably didn't have as much crud in them, uh, but if you are a person who drinks out of the hose, or if you're using this hose all the time for filling, you know, a, a fish pond or something like that, 
there are hoses that are made out of pure rubber um, that give you a purer water. But in general, for watering your garden, watering your landscape, um, a good hose like a flex engine hose is uh, is all you're ever going to need. But uh, but but don't drink from the hose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see some people still. You know, that was. Yeah. I think and and they do make drinking water. Or just do the, and they give it to their dog and their children, and mm-hmm. you know. Well, that. Yeah. yeah, if you can fill the fill the dog water from uh, the from the tap, um, just you, the hoses should be used to put water on plants, not to put water elsewhere. <laughs> so, getting close to news, uh, can uh, what else can I help you with? That's it. You know, I'm not going well, to be. Uh, you know, I don't have any more information, but this is wonderful because uh, it's my pleasure. Well, you're doing well. You get out and enjoy. Let me know if you have any more trouble finding the hose. Kim, you're next right here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening on a nice Saturday morning out there. Uh, looks like Mike, Kim, and Mike and Sarah, lots of folks up early this morning, so... Uh, uh, it makes my job easier and a lot more fun. So let's just keep going with phone calls, Don. And uh, Kim is next in line. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have um, a few questions. We're going to kind of kind of all over the place, actually. Okay. Um, I just recently finished um, Howard's course, the the tort course. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Okay. All right. Can you hear me? I think we lost your voice there. Oh, Kim, your your phone dropped off on you. Call back, and uh, we'll continue that conversation about uh, the certification course. Let's go ahead and see what Mike's up to. Good morning, Mike. Mom, yeah, my my phone's fixing to die also. <laughs> okay, but, uh, well, let's get quick. Get get to it. <laughs> How can anyway, I help? Uh, the other morning, uh, I was drinking coffee at the table of knowledge, and so. Uh, <laughs> I've got, uh, I, I told the fellas there, I says, uh, you know, I've got a problem with the grasshoppers this year, and I've had it every, I've had grasshoppers every year, but this year seems to be a little worse, and I can't get any NOLO, and, and I mean, it was too late for NOLO anyway, and then I uh, said, I don't know about semaspore, whether I can get that. And one of the guys says, well, just use uh, permethrin. And I said, well, wait a minute now, I don't want to kill the bees and everything else, you know, and they said, oh, it's okay, it'll be all right as long as you don't spray the blooming plants, the plants that got blooms on them, and, and uh, do it in the middle of the day, and I said, I better hold off on that, I better, I better call Bob Webster and ask for some consultation on that. Well, I certainly not something I would do, uh, not only for the sake of the bees, but You've got a lot of other beneficials out there keeping things in check, from the ladybugs to the lace wings to the soldier bugs. There, you know, there uh-huh. there are twenty five different good bugs for every bad one. Plus, I don't right. think even permethrin is going to do a lot against grasshoppers. A mature grasshopper, uh, there's not a whole lot other. You know, your heel is going to do much to it, other than you know, birds will sometimes dine on right. them. And right. until, and of course, Semaspor and Nolo are basically the same thing, and neither one of them seem to be available. But um, right. we're still having the best luck spraying 
with the kaolin clay, and you can either buy it from the hobby shop as kaolin clay, or you can find it a lot of places under the name Surround, S-U-R-R-O-U-N-D, Surround WP for wettable powder. And it doesn't kill the grasshoppers, but it uh, apparently interferes with their digestion. They they won't eat plants that have had this sprayed on the leaves. And, uh, you know, we certainly don't seem to be in any periods of real heavy rains for going to wash it off. One spraying is probably going to last you quite a while. But... Um, uh, that would certainly be what I would do. I, you know, you, you're just, you're just looking for trouble when you start spraying some of these toxic things around. Right. Uh, but the only thing is, is I've tried that, that, uh, clay, kaolin or whatever you call that stuff. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem to work very well. Well, make it a little stronger, make it a little stronger to where you actually see a whitish residue on the foliage. Um, on the what, plants, on the plants yeah. themselves. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's wow. that's what you're that's what you're doing. You want to coat the leaves very thoroughly with it, because uh-huh. grasshopper comes along and takes a bite out of it and says, "Yuck, this stuff doesn't taste very good." And then okay. they go over and eat your neighbor's stuff instead. Okay, all right. Well, I'll give her a shot. I've, I I got some uh, online and uh, uh, from Amazon, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I just didn't mix it strong enough or something. Yeah, I, I would mix it as strong as you can. It goes into suspension rather than really into solution. So mix right. it as strong as you can without clogging your sprayer up because, you know, you don't have to do any more than just get a good coating on the leaves. It's not like a product where you're trying to soak the ground or saturate everything. You just want to spray the new foliage that the grasshoppers are likely to be targeting. It's amazing what you can learn at the table of knowledge every morning. <laughs> well, and, you know, sadly, the table of knowledge seems to be most often populated by people who have been around a long time and are still doing what their grandfather did or their grandfather's grandfather did. And uh, those of us who love our pets and who have taken the time to, you know, educate ourselves about some of these things, uh think that there's a better way to do things everybody you know that's what freedom's about is doing as long as you're not yeah. harming your friends and neighbors but um uh there's just more than way to, one way to approach a problem and i'm going to do my best to do the natural and organic way because i've seen too much cancer i've seen too many pets die from oh, yeah. uh household uh, products and agricultural products so i uh I like my dogs and my cats better than I like most people <laughs> there. Okay. So I'm, I'm keeping my landscape as safe as possible. All right, Bob. I appreciate it. I appreciate, appreciate you call, Mike. You have a great uh, great Saturday. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Uh, has Kim made it back through, Don? Okay, then we'll move on and talk with Sarah next. Uh, good morning, Sarah. Good morning, and thank you. I have a problem trying to inject BT into zucchini squash. My needle stops up, and what I observed, because I guess I tried too many times, the bottom leaf is dying, um, and if I too close to where the ground, where the stem's coming out, it's so hard, I can't mm-hmm. get the needle in. And also, my question is, how often should I try injecting the BT? 
Well, generally one time is enough. Now, zucchini is much tougher than the crooknecks and the patty pans because the other squash tend to have much more of a hollow stem. Uh, the zucchini is a much more solid stem. So rather than being able to squirt a bunch of BT into a zucchini stem, I just, you know, inject a little bit, move a couple of inches down the stem, inject a little bit more, and um, it's you. If you don't try to go too deeply into the stem, you will have less problems with that needle clogging. It's still going to be an issue from time to time, and sometimes uh, you know you don't want to just be spraying BT everywhere because it's wasteful. But uh, sometimes I'll have a second syringe body uh, just filled with water, and I'll just you know pop the needle off my my one that's filled with BT, put it on the other and give the plunger a good push to try to clean that needle out or else have a very, very fine piece of wire. But, uh, no, zucchini is definitely tougher to do than the crooknecks and patty pans and some of the other squash. And so rather than being able or trying to inject a bunch in one spot, I'll just move along, you know, about eight inches of stem and inject it four or five different places, just a small amount each place, and that seems to work well. So you go eight inches up the stem. I guess I was trying to no, stay I, I, close I, to the... No, I, I start about three or four inches up the stem, but then I will inject uh, a little bit, you know, every couple of inches for the next eight inches up the stem. But I start injecting, you know, much closer to the ground because it seems like the vine borers lay those eggs in the first, yeah. oh, you know, three or four inches. So that's where Absolutely. I start, but then I will make you know, in, uh, inject a little bit at multiple places on up the stem from that point. Okay, well, I'll try again, I guess. Just be careful and don't inject yourself in the process. <laughs> oh, uh, don't worry about that. And I just, um, with my syringe, I pull up just a little bit of molasses. Um, is Is that okay? Oh, yeah, that's ideal. That's ideal because molasses is a bacterial stimulant, and what you're injecting is a bacteria, Bacillus thuringiensis. And so, yeah, you're doing you're doing it right. You're getting the benefit of the BT, and you're, you know, getting the benefit of keeping the BT very active. So that's an ideal thing to do. Yes, ma'am. Well, I appreciate it so much and all the information you share with us. Have well, a great it's, weekend. It's my pleasure, and you do the same. Thanks for the call this morning. Okay, uh, tell you what, let's get a break in here. <laughs> Excuse me, and uh, uh, do have some open lines. Grab one of them if you like. Uh, you know the number, 210-599-5555. I get to talk to you about Sam Sitterly, Green Grow Organics. And once again, it just seems like I so often hear, I just can't figure out what's going on. I can't figure out what's wrong with this plant or I can't figure out why my tree is doing this or can't figure out why I can't keep my grass green in this one particular area. Well, if you've been looking for a qualified, competent person who can come out and actually look over your landscape with you, well, consider Green Grow Organics and Sam Sitterly. He's been doing this for like 30 years. Everything Sam does is organic and he's helped thousands of people around this area. In fact, a lot of people have it set up where Sam comes out on a quarterly basis or sometimes this if his new landscape comes out on a monthly basis. Other folks just call him on an as-needed basis. But it's just nice to know that Sam and his guys are out there to help you when something's 
showing up in your landscape that you're just not sure how to deal with. Now, they're certainly not the guys that do the uh, tree trimming and the mowing and edging and things, but they do compost tea application, they do some fertilizing, they do, you know, they, they take care of the basics of what you may need to do in your landscape. And if you just need some advice, if you're looking, say, you know, gosh, I'd, I'd love to do something, make this area a little more attractive, wonderful to grow in this spot. Well, once again, with 30 years of, over 30 years of knowledge and experience, Sam's right there to help you. Check out the website, greengroworganics.com. So look at all the beautiful pictures and all the high raving reviews. If it looks good to you, give them a call. Set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front. Uh, oh, by the way, if you need the number, it's easy, 210-599-5565. But uh, check out the website, Green Grow Organics and Sam Sitterly. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and uh, back to <laughs> back to all the fun things we get to talk about on Saturday and Sunday mornings around here. And uh, tell you what, I'm going to talk to Tom, and then we're going to talk. Kim's got a line back through, and we'll get her questions, and then we're going to do Thomas. So, uh, uh, actually, Tom's been waiting longest at this point. So, good morning, Tom. Morning, Bob. Uh, good morning. Appreciate you taking time to talk to me. Uh, my wife and I live out here on Lake McQueenie, uh-huh. which uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. It's been they've started draining it uh, back right. in March, um, right? And I was just uh, hoping to get your input. So far, I have a uh, you know I used to irrigate my my property uh, from water from the lake. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's no longer available. So, uh, and my well has gone dry. Oh, so goodness. I'm relying on uh, what they call out here pipe water, I guess a, a city water. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm 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 concerned. Uh, so far, I, I've what I've done is once a week. Uh, well, I, I have two large bald cypress and three large pecans on the lakeside and then on out front uh, a couple of large pecans a large elm and a large oak tree and then of course there's my my beds and my my beloved fig tree <laughs> and uh, right. so far the strategy I've used is uh, once a week on Sundays I I water uh, with a sprinkler, I bypass my my water softener and uh, water uh, around the the drip line of the large trees uh, for about thirty to forty five minutes uh, around each tree. And during the week, if I get hot spots, I I, I spot water them, and then I, I hand water my beds. And so far, I, I, things seem to be going okay but do you think i'm watering enough for the trees and or or do you think i should be doing it more often i'm just curious as to your thoughts under the present circumstances i think you're probably doing enough now if we go for two months without any rainfall no you're probably going to have to increase the amount of water that you're using but uh, right now we're early in the summer. How how low is the lake? How far is it from where 
you know, there's actually water to where the shoreline used to be? Uh, well, it's receding daily, but I live on the main body of the lake, and right now I'd say I'm 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 getting close to 50 feet uh, from okay. the water, which is very very shallow and, and yep. looking worse worse yep. and worse day by I, day. I I think for your beds, for your lawn, for you know garden things like that, what you're doing is going to work fine. I think you know long term we're really we're going to have to watch the weather. We're going to have to watch the you know the plants themselves. If there's any way that you can capture and use gray water, uh, any supplemental water is a good thing. Uh, just you know again the only the biggest problem with water comes out of the pipe is just the cost of it since you bypassed your water softener. Right. And yeah. um, I would sure be looking at rainwater catchment since you don't know when there's going to be water back in the lake. And it takes very little other than gutters and an appropriate uh, tank to collect rainwater, which uh, is what I know a lot of people. Uh, in fact, my business partner, she's got like 15,000 gallons of storage. And that's what helps her keep her flower garden going through the summer months and does a beautiful job of it. So um and it's amazing an average house you'll get uh oh golly you'll get several thousand gallons of water from a relatively small amount of rain so i would be looking at that long term as just a a supplemental water source i think everybody in this part of the world should be looking at rainwater catchment if you're on enough land that you can you know put two or three or in the case of my old friend John Kite, uh, John has like 50,000 gallons in his old house of, of rainwater catchment, and he never had to rely on a well or any other source of water. So I, I think you're doing fine, but I think you're just going to have to let the plants tell you uh, if they are getting enough water. And like I say, if, I've always said, if something droops in the afternoon, I don't worry too much about it. If it's still drooping the next morning, then it very definitely needs water, and uh I would water accordingly, but I think you're on a, a good plan um, considering where we are right now in the summer. We are into officially a La ne- or an El Nino pattern, not a real strong El Nino yet, but it means that the likelihood of moderate temperatures and increased rainfall is good, certainly much better than if we were still in La Nina. So, I, I, in this case, I'd, I'd call it, you know, what what a doctor would call watchful waiting. Let's just wait and see how things do. But anything you can do to, uh, you know, to collect rainwater or even to collect rainwater, not black water. Black water is your sewage system, and you don't want to deal with that. But gray water is yes. great for plants. And um, matter of fact, just in case your supplier doesn't know it, uh, all the equipment that you buy for rainwater catchment, whether it's putting up gutters, whether it's uh, you know buying a, a, a tank, one or more tanks, uh, don't let them charge you sales tax on that because all of that material is sales tax free, and uh, that can amount to you know substantial savings. So, um, okay, I, I think uh, you know that's that's the best advice I can give you. We don't know when. The people managing Dunlop and McQueenie and that series of lakes, I have some pretty severe questions about their management strategy, but uh, hopefully they know more than I do. But uh, I do know groundwater, and uh, that that's about the best I think I can tell you. Okay. Where would you recommend? Uh, I have gutters, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so where would you recommend I go? I, 
and I guess I could just show them pictures of my current gutters and and the the downspout areas, and they could maybe advise me and and sell me the proper thing. Uh, if uh, where would you recommend I go for something like that? If you're in the McQueenie area, um, there is a place here in San Antonio called a Tank Depot, D-E-P-O-T, that has good quality tanks. If you were up in the hill country, I'd send you, I know they've changed the name, used to be Bonert Lumber and Comfort, and I can't remember what the name of the new people is, but Steve Bonert's still there. And uh, they have top quality tanks. Uh, I've heard good things but haven't had you know personal experience with uh, some of the other tank towns some of the other people around but uh, i know okay. the tank depot typically has real good i would avoid the box stores uh if you get a right. you know the, but uh the you're you're gonna find uh quite an array of sizes and shapes and uh you just have to go with you know what works best with your landscape and everything but uh i'd be okay. i'd be real comfortable with bonard or with uh um, tank depot tank either depot. one. All right. Yeah. Uh, one one bright spot is our fig tree. It, we had a bumper crop this year, and we put up gallons and gallons of preserve uh, fig preserve. Very and, good. Uh, man, I I'm amazed. I, I thought it'd be a bad year, but uh, so far it's amazing. Well, you've got deeper soil than most of us, and we have had some rainfall. So uh, keep me posted if you have further questions. Don't ever hesitate to give me a call, Tom. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Got to get a break done here, Kim. You're after that, and then we will move right along. Uh, Looks like I get to talk about, while we're on the subject of water, it's a good time to talk about water softeners and the two basic types of water softeners. See, the ones that you hear advertised ad nauseum on the radio are your typical standard electronic water softeners. You plug them in, uh, you add lots of salt, and they give you nice soft water. Problem is, you get a power surge, well, you can have some issues with that water softener. And if the power goes off, well, you're not going to have any soft water till it comes back on. That's why I like Kinetico. Kinetico is a totally different type of water softener. doesn't run on electricity. It gets its energy from the kinetic energy of the water, hence the name Kinetico. Not affected by power surges or lightning strikes or power outages. It just sits there day after day producing top quality soft water. And, of course, it it doesn't recharge on a preset schedule. That's the other problem with your electronic ones. They recharge on a preset schedule lots of times when they don't really need to be recharged. And that wastes a lot of salt, a lot of water, a lot of money. Not Kinetico. It's a twin tank system, so you never run out of soft water, but the rosin only recharges when it needs to. They're so certain you'll love your Kinetico system, they'll let you try it for 90 days before you pay for it. I've had one for many, many years, and I highly recommend Kinetico. Check them out online at KineticoSA.com or give them a call, 210-656-PURE for Kinetico. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Kim and Thomas and Christy. Kim is first in line. Hope that phone's working better now, Kim. Let's 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 move forward. Um, we were uh, well. Let's just let's just start to get going. All right. Thank you. Yes, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but. Um, I guess I was just telling you that I completed the uh, tort course right. that uh, 
Howard has, and it was really, really good. I enjoyed it. Of course, it brought up a lot of questions, and then um, I'm kind of an advocate for um, the organic, I guess, practice, you know, right. different systems, a lot of the things that you and ha- Howard um, throw out there. Um, but it brings up a lot of questions as well, because then when I say something, people will say, well, why? And, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm trying to understand. Um, so I got a, just a few little questions here, kind of all over the place. Okay. Um, do, okay. Do synthetic fertilizers have any kind of a cation exchange? No. Cat- okay. Synthetic fertilizers are almost 100 percent. And uh, rarely do they have anything other than anionic forms of nitrogen. So uh, they have nothing that will bind them to the soil. Okay. Um, what would you say to someone who says, oh, I use a slow-release, so 6 to 9 not slow-release fertilizer, but I supplement with uh, Medina has to grow? Nothing wrong with that. Um it's, uh, you know, that that's the nice thing about organics is nothing goes to waste uh, in that most all the products in a slow-release organic fertilizer or uh, and in the has to grow, these are all things in the cation form, so they're going to be bound in the soil and held until the plants are ready for it. Uh, liquid products tend to be much more available much more quickly to the plants uh, than granular products do. Granular products typically are acted upon by microbes in the soil and released a little bit, well, the plants sort of take a little bit at a time from them. Uh, In my own garden and gardens that I help friends with, uh, typically I will use a uh, you know, granular fertilizer at the beginning of the season and then follow up with uh, applications of liquid fertilizer, whether it's tomatoes or periwinkles, and uh, it always seems to give very good results. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I actually do that with the growing green, but what, mm-hmm. if, the, what if they're synthetic fertilizers? Um, throwing your money away and killing the microbes in the soil and indicating that you're basically not very smart. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, it again, synthetic fertilizers, your plants, you're lucky if the plant actually gets 10% of the nitrogen, especially that's in that fertilizer. So, um, again, it's, uh, uh, it's just, I don't know, it's like I say, the negative things are it tends to destroy soil life, it tends to burn organic material out of the soil because... Uh, synthetic fertilizers bring no carbon along with them. They bring no energy along with them. So the microbes that process them have to get their energy from somewhere, so they break down organic material that's in the soil. Every time you put one of those products in the soil, you're destroying organic material, and that's what's wrong with the farmland across most of this country is they burn so much of the organic material out of it that basically they're growing crops hydroponically and it just doesn't give us very good nutrition, and we just really don't have the water to do that. So um, that's another good reason to stay away from synthetic fertilizers. And, um, you know, it's uh, the, the destruction of microbial life is very bad for insect and disease control issues. So I guess those are probably the three basics. Number one, you only get a small percentage of the nitrogen's in there, you're burning carbon out of the soil, which is why we've got so much carbon dioxide in the air right now. And um, um, 
you know, you're you're destroying the microbes that play an important role in keeping plants healthy. And anybody that needs more reasons than that needs a new brain. But <laughs> not that I have a strong opinion on that. Okay. And that's kind of what I thought, but I just wanted to hear, hear how you would answer that question. Um, this week, I amended a lot of my pots, you know, because of the heat and having mm-hmm. to water a little bit. But fortunately, I'm still only having to water about every three days, and I think that's because of the the quality soil that, that we've oh, built yeah. up here. But um, I amended the soil, and then I watered it in with my Medina has to grow, and or actually this week, liquid fish. But um, then we've got you know, an inch of rain, how would you say that it washed through or maybe how long does it take that cation exchange to actually happen? Virtually instantaneous. Oh, okay. It's, so would you yeah, say it, that I, I didn't lose, I didn't probably, that I still have good fertilizer and stuff in there? Oh, yeah. You still have plenty of things. Only where you're going to lose things if you're using, you know, granular fertilizer, even a good one like growing green if you get such torrents of water running through that the particles, the little granules of fertilizer are picked up and carried away, uh, that's another story. But uh, uh, that we haven't had that kind of rain any time recently. But uh, they they are processed fairly quickly by soil microbes, and your liquid fertilizers are bound up almost instantly. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, I use your, um, the I called it, my concoction with seaweed, garlic, and um, molasses mm-hmm. on their basis. I kind of wanted to tell you that before. But it's kind of interesting. I don't get a lot of the fungal problems and stuff like that because of that. But mm-hmm. recently I've noticed I've got just three out of probably a couple of hundred plants out there that have the black spot on the leaves. All of these are my darker varieties of my plumerias. Um, the, all three of them are like a darker red color. Uh-huh. And they're out in the open, so they have good airflow. Could this just be caused by the higher humidity and the, the heat stress? It can oh, be caused heat. by the heat stress. It can actually, you know, plants can actually get a little sunburn. If, uh, um, you know, if, if, say, a portion of a plant is being shaded by the leaves above it, and then for whatever reason, those leaves get moved around, cut off, broken off, eaten off, whatever, those leaves that were a little bit more protected will simply sunburn, and you'll get big black areas of nothing more than sunburn. So um, there are lots of different reasons that you can get black spots on the leaves. You can also have drops of water form on the leaf when you're watering, and then that little water droplet acts like a prism to magnify the sun's rays, and uh, it can burn the spot underneath the water droplet. That's why it's best to water the soil only and why it's best not to water in the middle of the afternoon but golly there's so many reasons that you could get black spots on the leaves that you're going to have to do a little good observation to try to narrow it down right these are those um the little black purple spots that just kind of almost appear overnight and there's like multiple spots on each of the leaves it doesn't do it on the whole plant Mm -hmm. and i kind of have done some research and i think it's like a black spot fungus Um, it could be it could be and what it could also be is if you've got any aphids or most any kind of insect that would like to feed on that plant all the aphids the scales the mealybugs all of those things produce a excrement that we call honeydew and the black mold loves to grow on those the 
you know, my test is can you wipe it off with a moist cloth or something like that? If it if it is ingrained in the leaf, then it's probably sunburn or potentially a fungus. If it wipes off, it's probably the result of uh, some insects that you may want to consider taking care of. Okay, I, I would I would lean toward fungus, and what would I do about it? What would I is there something doubt if doubt if you really need to do anything? You might increase the amount of garlic you might add some corn water tea to your mix but uh it doesn't sound like a real significant problem but i i probably would just uh add some corn water tea to your mix or perhaps make your garlic a little stronger both of those would be good things will it spread to my other plants depends on what it is there's no way i can tell you that i doubt very much that it will okay and then last question um what happens to vinegar once you know I, I know that it really doesn't – I kind of advocate the vinegar and orange oil for killing weeds. And right. then um, when I put that out there, the argument, somebody came back and said, oh, that changes the pH in the soil and it makes the soil more acidic. Um, what happens – what I've understood is it doesn't stay in the soil very long and definitely not long enough to really change the pH. But what happens to it? Where does it go? Well, it, it, it breaks down. It chemically decomposes. Uh, the pH is uh, a measure of free hydrogen ion in the soil. And if it makes the soil a little bit more acidic, in many cases, this is a very good thing. But um, it's certainly not enough to cause a problem. Uh, the acetate radical, which is a part of vinegar, part of uh, um, the acid uh you know, acetic acid, as all vinegar is, uh, it decomposes naturally through uh, microbial action. But uh, I, golly, I don't remember my chemistry well enough to tell you step by step <laughs> what is broken down yeah. into and what the end result is. But it's certainly nothing negative to plant life once it's gotten beyond the uh, acetate stage. Definitely not as bad as the glyphosate. <laughs> not even in the same league <laughs> right. right well what i did is i just copied a link of how from howard's website and sent it to them so that was about like that's how i answered the question i was like well uh, you're inquiring minds are a good thing kim so you uh you get out and have a wonderful weekend and uh thank you so much for answering my questions always a pleasure thank you uh thomas hang on just a second and uh you will be up next I get to talk to everybody about Rhonda's Nature's Way, and that is, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong place here, forget that. I get to talk about Medina at this point, and it's a very, very good thing to follow up with. And uh, one thing that Medina wants me to focus on is the fact that they have a lot of great products based on things that come from the oceans. And when you stop and think about it, all the rivers of the world drain to the oceans. They carry all kinds of nutrients there. Those nutrients are concentrated by the kelps, by the seaweeds out there. Well, Medina has a really good liquid seaweed product and uh, just great for adding all kinds of beneficial compounds. can be used as a drench. I like it even better as a foliar spray. 
And we, in fact, Kim was just touching on uh, the one of the other liquid fertilizers that Medina produces, which is what they call their liquid fish. And that, again, has the right form of nutrients in it to benefit your plants, to give it a quick, a quick action as well as very long-lasting action because, once again, they're bound to the soil. They stay there until your plants need those nutrients. Medina makes so many quality products, but... Uh, Two good ones to, to keep in mind are the liquid fish fertilizer and the liquid seaweed supplement. Both of those things are going to help you get through summer in a little bit better shape. Uh, the liquid fish, I would tend to apply it more as a drench. The seaweed, I would tend to use it more as a foliar spray. But you're not going to go wrong no matter how you use those products. And they're great on your vegetable garden, on your flower beds, even on your house plants. Uh, just quality products. A few of the many great things that come from Medina. If you'd like a full list of all the good things that Medina makes, just go to their website at medinaag.com. <laughs> all right. Looks like it's going to be Thomas and Christy and Brenda. Thomas is first in line. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. How's good morning, sir. So far, it's uh, off to a good start. <laughs> I uh, am sight impaired, 85, and uh, I have uh, listened long years with your uh, advice and and been really blessed. uh, Well, I appreciate that. I have three questions. Okay. Uh, You have a commercial grower that calls you from time to time, and and he uh, experiments somewhat. And he, one of the things I'm sight impaired is I cannot see an ant. So the only way I know that there are ants is that they bite me. (laughs) Yes, sir. uh, I get 18, 20 sometimes of those creatures. Mm -hmm. Uh, He mentioned that he had a, he was experimenting with a ant trap that Mm -hmm. he, uh, said it was working. You didn't go into uh, any particulars on it. Do you recall what he was doing to do that? He was um, using, I believe it was boric acid. Uh, that's Farmer James you're talking about. And uh, if he's listening, as he frequently is, he might just give us a call and uh, and refresh our memories. I still use the Come and Get It by uh, Fertilome is a bait which uh, you don't actually have to get on the ants. You just kind of scatter it around the area. The ants pick it up, take it, feed it to the queen, and then the whole colony dies out. Um, but uh, and and that's a that, hormone, right? Uh, no, it is a it is a preferred food stuff which has been coated with a natural insecticide uh, uh, called spinosad. And uh, it's very effective. Uh, Ants have, uh, or at least most ants, uh, create what we call a pheromone trail, which is an insect hormone. But uh, the bait really isn't based on that at all. The bait is based on uh, just it's a preferred foodstuff. And the ants tend to, 
they they pick up a lot of different things that they use as food, but there are a handful of things that they save for the queen. The queen rules, the queen gets the best of the best, and so they take, and I don't know exactly what it is, but they take the material that is good enough that the worker ants take it to feed to the queen. That's what they treat with the spinosad insecticide, and that's why... You know, you don't have to have every ant come in contact with it because they're, and that's why you just kind of scatter around. You don't mound it up or anything. The ants find it, take it, feed the queen, and that's the end of that colony. What would you suggest? Because in, you cannot get that. Uh, a, a good one inch rain will wash it away. Uh, what would you suggest uh, would be a quick trap? that I could put, that I could replenish, uh, you know, on a weekly or monthly basis? Um, it depends on the type of ant. On fire ants, I I don't know really of anything that would work better other than perhaps, you know, putting your spinosad in some sort of container, you know, that, that was out of the rain um, you can create a trap for many kinds of ants with boric acid and sugar and just put it in an area, once again, where it's not going to be hit by rain or watering. And, so you um, could use the boric acid and the sugar as a enhancement to, uh, to lead them to the trap. You could do that, but keep in mind that boric acid is toxic to plants. So you, that's, we use that more inside, whereas we use some of the others outside. But um, uh, there are other things that fire ants, you know, are, are attracted to. And, uh, oh, golly, I'm just trying to think of the things okay. that I see them going after. Anything that has much of any, any kind of sugary material or molasses or anything like that, um, fire ants are very attracted to dried fruit. If you ever want to put something out that the ants really seem to go to, uh, they are very attracted to peanut butter. I'm just trying to think of the different things that I've learned the hard way. Okay. Don't put them out where the ants could find it, but peanut butter is quite an attractant to fire ants. Yeah, and it's also sticky, and you could put it under uh, un- underneath a board yep. so that it doesn't wash off. There you go. Jack the board up an inch off the ground or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then two quick questions. On the seedling tray uh, and also the uh, uh, root, uh, rooting a cutting, uh-huh. where is the best sun placement? You know, living in Texas, you fight the uh, animals and things that have to survive down here. I grew up in Ohio like you grew up in sure. Tennessee, and, and we didn't have to fight this many battles. <laughs> well, I, I lived a number of different places, including Texas, Tennessee, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. But um, they, it's different from your, your seedling plants and your rooted cuttings. Cuttings don't have a root system yet, so we have to be very careful to keep them in an area that's bright but doesn't get much direct sunlight because we don't want to really kick transpiration into high gear when they don't have roots to take things up. Uh, your seedling transplants, I would put them where they get strong morning sun and where they get protection from the wind. Um, your your trays for rooting things, I would keep those where they have bright shade only, no direct sun. 
And it, do you use in your root cuttings, do you use a uh, one that's clear, like a clear plastic tube or something, or do you want the roots to be shaded? Uh, it doesn't so really make any difference at all. It. Doesn't make doesn't any difference make at all. Difference. Would uh, yeah, no, I've grown in, uh, you know, in clear plastic drink cups, and I've grown in very dark containers, and the roots seem to be pretty much the same. Let's get that last question, because I'm about yeah, to run out of time here. And, well, no, that was two questions right oh, there. Okay. So oh, okay. You've taken care of me, and uh, move on, and uh, I appreciate it very much. Well, it's my pleasure, and glad oh, you're still I able to go. the other question was, Bob. Where do you find tomato transplant in July? You, they're available in the nurseries right now. I know Phoenix has them. We have my suspect Rainbow Garden does as well. Got to go to news. This is KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Already 7 a.m. How is it possible that we've been... Uh, Talking for an hour and a half, just such good questions, and uh, I don't know, just you, you South Texas and gardeners uh, from all the different places you call, just absolutely wonderful and uh, great, great questions. Uh, looks like it's up to Christy. It's going to be Christy and Brenda and Mike. Christy is first in line. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm off to a good start. How about yourself? Well, pretty good, pretty good. It's lovely. So, good Good call on the previous gentleman with the ants. Yes, ma'am. On the afternoon of the 3rd, so just Monday, uh-huh. I came out on the patio. A swarm, Bob, a swarm of what looked to be carpenter ants with wings. Mm-hmm. And it lasted for about 36 hours off the corner of the house. They all went in the gutter and down through the downspouts, and um, we ended up trying to kill them with everything. You know, I'm typically mm-hmm. organic, and oh my God, we, we we went to the store, and they told us it's probably a swarm. Never seen it before. There were thousands we ended up putting in trash bags, and I put some bleach, and they all died. Mm-hmm. What the heck? What do I do to prevent something like that in future? I've never seen anything like it before well it actually sounds more like termites than carpenter ants and this is this is what they do they've got a big underground colony and when certain environmental conditions occur um they go through this swarming as they call it uh with uh, you know both the male and the female ants, uh, they don't they don't have wings unless they are getting ready to swarm. In which case they fly off to somewhere yeah. else. They land, their wings fall off, and they attempt to uh, start new colonies. Now, anytime I see, and uh, it, it may not be termites, it may be some other ant, but uh, probably a wood eating ant of some sort. I just go after them with orange oil and water. I mix my orange oh, oil. Oh, it didn't little... work. Well, it didn't work. It... I tried orange oil. I tried dimetaceous earth. I tried vinegar, orange oil, and soap. Well, it, it works, but it takes time. They don't just fall over dead. They're probably way out yeah. of sight before they die. But what the orange oil does, the orange oil softens up what 
passes for a skin on them. It's called an exoskeleton, and the orange oil softens that, and then the bacteria take over and kill the ant. But that may take 48 hours. So okay. um, it's, you're not going to see it as fast. But this is uh, probably the best way to reduce this kind of ant population is just periodically putting out beneficial nematodes. Because the beneficial I did, nem- two weeks ago. Well, Two weeks but that ago, I came and picked some up from you guys. It was my second um, spray this year. I did one in April when you were on the radio saying now's a good time. I'm like, I went and bought some, put them out, and then um, I put them out when we had all that rain up here. Uh, mm-hmm. So about two weeks ago, I sprayed the whole yard with beneficial nematodes, especially the mounds. Well, and it just it just takes longer than two weeks because these wow. mounds can have. Uh, a big mound, even a fire ant, they say, can have two or three million ants in it. Even if you sprayed out a million nematodes, it's going to take them a while to to kill out all of the you know all of the ants in that colony. So it may take two or three months before your beneficial nematodes, yeah. you know, really go after it. But um, again, as long as the nematodes are finding something to prey upon, such as the ants or grub worms or something like that, they continue to remain healthy, they continue to reproduce, they continue to make more nematodes, um, even though the individual nematode only lives about 60 days, when they're finding the ant larvae or things like that to reproduce in, their numbers stay up and they go on working and you'll probably get the benefits of it for months to come. But uh, when you're dealing with ants, which can have you know, several million in a single colony, uh, the nematodes aren't going to do the job, you know, in just two weeks. That's it's best to, yeah. to get on a program of using them two or three times a year and just try to keep those big numbers from ever developing. Developing, yeah. I did, um, I did manage to, like, isolate one. So from the description online and my picture of it, it didn't say it was a termite because the body was, like, separated. Um, it wasn't, they were saying the termite has a whole body, like saying, and these had like a front end and a back end, but well, it was dead. Yeah. Ter- termites are, in effect, a kind of ant, but uh, if you research it, then probably what you're looking at is, you know, one of the many species of carpenter ants or wood-eating ants. There, there are hundreds of different kinds of ants, and yeah. in fact, there are scientists that study nothing but ants. They're some of the most boring people I've ever known, because I've known a few. But uh, yeah. uh, you probably had some sort of wood-eating ant, and uh, okay. they, you know, that, that swarming, it generally only lasts a matter of hours. So unless you happen to be at home, happen to be outside and see it, it's probably happened before, and you just didn't know it. But uh, uh, they're gone for now. You did an effective job of, you know, killing out the majority of the ones that were taking off, so... Just be aware, just use, uh, you know, if, if you put your beneficial nematodes out two weeks ago, do it again in uh, early fall, about September or October, okay. and you should certainly have uh, a lot fewer a lot fewer ants to deal with in the future. Yeah, we saw some of them um, as it was tapering down, you know, because we were home. I, at first, I was out with the fly swatter on the patio, literally squatting squashing these things and then <laughs> yeah, they were in that. the air and but they were going in the gutter and the downspout so i'm like bag it up put a bag on it and we dumped it in there yeah but then on the last day so it was about 36 hours 
Uh-huh. Ones that hit, got hit by the western sun came on the deck, and it was like they were dying from the sun. They kept trying to hide under the chairs in the shade, and we're like, that's peculiar. I'm going to call Bob on Saturday. <laughs> Well, uh, it'd be hard to say which specific one, but it sounds like uh, you've gotten that particular swarm of them under control. But make it a point to uh, to do your beneficial nematodes two or three, even four times a year, and you'll greatly yeah. reduce the number of them that'll be out there to swarm again. Jesus. Ugh. Okay, thank you. You have a lovely day. <laughs> well, you get out and think about something else, and uh, you yeah. do the same. And uh, thank you, Chrissy. And we will move on to Brenda. Good morning, Brenda. Morning, Is, Bob. Well, uh, good morning. I am a little bit worried about my two brand-new rose bushes uh, that I planted at the end of April, uh, a Rio Samba and a Grandmother's Yellow um, we had such beautiful rain. They were, mm-hmm. you know, blooming. They were just gorgeous. And then when the heat came, uh, I thought, you know, how often should I water them? And I, I maybe I didn't water them enough. And then I started this regimen oh, a couple weeks ago of of uh, just uh, drip dripping the hose on them for 30, 30 minutes every. Uh, three days, um, uh, and I, I checked the finger, um, and it, I don't know if we had gotten rain or whatever, but it, it was damp, uh, and am I not giving it enough water? They don't look very good. I think they probably did get a little dry at some point. Um, we're, we're seeing the same thing. There are a lot of roses that look prettier than they have in years this spring with the weather, and then once the summer heat hit, uh, all of a sudden, you're losing leaves, and um, it, it's it's more weather than anything else. As far as watering, uh, most roses, you just you want to water them super thoroughly when you water them. I'm not sure, you know, 15, 20 minutes of drip is really going to be enough. You need to be putting down an inch to two inches of water. Oh, mulching, gosh. yeah, mulching them will help uh, as long as the the skin, so to speak, the outer covering on the rose stems, as long as that doesn't look shriveled, your roses are going to be fine. They're going to come out of it okay. But everybody's roses took a nosedive when we went from you know eighty degree highs to one hundred and five degree highs. So uh, you don't want to. You don't want to overdo it. What I always tell people is there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. When you water, you should really, really, really water thoroughly, and then you should let it go until that soil's dry half an inch deep or so before you water again. And how often that is is just going to depend on wind, on temperature, on the amount of sunlight. So um, I think you need to be watering more thoroughly thoroughly when you water and be watching for new growth be watching what's coming out on the tips of the branches as long as you have healthy new growth your plants are going to be fine yes um maybe i'll try an hour then uh per rose bush and um i know they need water anyway to bloom most of them do oh, yeah yeah so, uh, maybe i'll try an an hour with the drip, drip, drip with the hose. And uh, it's just that the lower leaves uh, became uh, yellow and brown. And um, it looks like on one, there is some new growth. So yeah. and should I be fertilizing? Um, oh, yeah. I'd, I'd be, I'd put some, yeah, I'd use, uh, 
you know, a good liquid fertilizer like Hester Grow Plant. I'd use some uh, Garrett juice. I might even put a little bit of Super Thrive in just to help stimulate some new root growth. But uh, very definitely be feeding uh, at least every three weeks or so all through the summer months. But um, I, you know, I think your roses look like most people's roses. They just, we had such a beautiful spring, and then the weather got suddenly so hot that uh, the, the size of the flower shrank by about half, and the lower foliage tended to do just exactly what you're describing. But long as your rose bushes are putting on new growth, new growth uh, they're going to come out fine. They should be pretty again. Um, both of those are ones that I would prune back around Labor Day, sometime around early September. Cut them back by about a third. That's going to stimulate a new burst of growth and probably give you a whole new set of beautiful flowers this fall. Oh, Labor Day. Okay, I'll put that on my calendar. Yeah, just right, in, in general, prune your roses heavily around Valentine's Day. Prune your roses lightly around Labor Day. And uh, that doesn't go for climbers, but all of your bush roses, which is what you have, uh, all of your bush roses will love that schedule. Okay. And uh, the mulch, uh, uh, is it okay to put it up by the root flare? I would keep it, you know, half an inch away from the trunk itself. But uh, over the over the root zone is where your mulch is really needed. It just uh, keeps the soil cooler cuts down on evaporation, just does a lot of things. But you're more interested in protecting the roots than the trunk. So leave it pulled back slightly away from the lower part of the stem from the root flare, but keep a good layer of mulch over the roots themselves. Okay. All right. Thank you, Bob. You are more than welcome. I sure appreciate the call. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Don, I believe I don't uh, have a recording commercial here, so let's, I mean, a live commercial, so let's run the recordings and get back to phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next three callers are going to be Mike and Greg, and Richard Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Well, uh, a couple questions about the sycamore, the Mexican sycamore that I finally purchased. Uh-huh. Um, it's uh, got a two-inch diameter. It's uh-huh. about 10 feet, 10 feet tall. Okay. Uh, I was told to dig the hole uh, 18 inches deep, which I did, but then I filled it up with a little bit of a shredded newspaper and and um, some grass clippings. And when the guy came to deliver it, he said the hole wasn't deep enough. So, you know, it's like maybe uh, an inch above the ground level. And I've heard you mention several times how sometimes when they bury uh, – when they uh, – put these things in these containers that they put them in too deep into the containers or something like that. Right, so right. Is there, is there such a thing as it being not deep enough? No, not really. Uh, I wouldn't I worry about, so. I wouldn't worry about it being up. I would have rather that you just put dirt back in the hole uh, because, you know, newspaper, grass clippings, things like that decompose over time and as they do so they're producing carbon dioxide which roots don't really like Car- roots like ah. oxygen so next time well next time you know look at the pot before you dig the hole and if you need to refill a hole and i've done this uh, everybody has dug a little too deeply fill it back in with soil and if your soil is loose 
firm it down. Don't absolutely pack it, but at the very least, you know, step down on it because over time, uh, soil will tend to kind of sink down, and you don't want that. You don't want, you know, your tree to be four inches deeper in the soil six months from now. So uh, in the future, uh, like I say, just refill the soil, the hole with soil, and tamp it down a bit is the word they use for that. But uh, I, I think you're fine. If your tree is raised up an inch or so, that's probably going to be a good thing. Main thing with okay. Mexican sycamores, especially over with your you know, heat and dry, um, water regularly, and every time you think about it, pick up the hose and just spray up and down the trunk of that sycamore. It, unlike other trees, it's not going to form a permanent bark. Sycamores do what we call exfoliating. They tend to just shed their bark constantly and on the good side that means that they absorb a lot of things through that softer bark so while okay. your sycamore is working on getting its roots spread out um, it would love for you to just give it a, a a drink through its leaves and through its bark just literally every time you think about it pick up the hose and just spray up and down the trunk of that tree even if it's you know half a dozen times a day the tree will absolutely love you for it and it will become established much more quickly okay a uh, couple things um well, it's not going to go down uh, any further because the ground down there, once I got down there, is like super hard. It's like okay. uh, almost, uh, uh, you know, down here there's a lot of these big boulders. There's kind of yeah. like sandstone or something. Right. And, and let me tell you, that dirt down there is really hard. <laughs> what well. uh, what I did do is I did not make the hole round like you. I heard you mm-hmm. suggest one time. No, I like I an angular it. hole much better. Yes, sir. And... Um, the other question was going to be exactly regarding the water because uh, with this heat that we have, I'm I'm doing it daily, but then I got to thinking, well, maybe I'm overdoing it with the watering. And that's possible, but keep in mind, water doesn't hurt anything. What happens is when the water displaces the oxygen in the soil and all of a sudden you know you, you your roots have to have oxygen top of the tree takes in carbon dioxide gives off oxygen the roots of the tree take in oxygen and uh, give off carbon dioxide so um, as long as you're not keeping the soil so saturated with water and your soil drains a lot better than my soil does uh, because I have some clay in the soil in a lot of different places so I don't know that you need to water that often but uh Frequent watering is going to not be as much of an issue in your type of soil as it would in a real heavy clay soil. So just remember, water very thoroughly when you water. Let that soil get dry an inch or so deep, and then water it very thoroughly again. I doubt that you're going to have to do it every day. But um, again, my rule, if something's a little droopy in the evening, don't worry about it. If it's still droopy the next morning, it needs water. But okay, uh, but do uh, do supplement your watering by spraying up and down the trunk and limbs of the tree, and it'll become established much more quickly. Um, I um, have like a five-gallon bucket that I uh, did a mixture of uh, uh, molasses, uh, powdered or uh, granular molasses with uh-huh. uh, that has to grow and uh, some like soil stimulator or something. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, that's what I poured in the first time. Yeah, that's great. Uh, when I still had when I still had uh, uh, the hole on the outer parts of the the um, the root ball, mm-hmm. and then I filled it up. Then I filled it back, filled it up with the dirt and everything. And uh, <clears throat> so that's what I'm 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 using as opposed to just water. 
Yeah, that's great. Well, and that's fine. I don't know that you need to use that every time. I probably would tend to, you know, use your mix once and then probably just use clear water two or three times and then, you know, make your mix again. I think, uh, I don't think you're hurting anything, but I think you're you're spending more money and more effort than you need to to be doing that every time. But if you're doing that, you know, a couple of times a month and then just using clear water in between, that's going to be an Uh, ideal situation. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Bob. Appreciate you. Well, it's always a pleasure, and I certainly do appreciate the call this morning. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, Let's see here. It looks like uh, Greg is next in line. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. Hey, Good I'm morning. wondering why is why do you think my Esperanza is not blooming this year? Is it in full Five, sun? Ninety, same place it always is. Probably ninety percent had great blooms blooms last year, and this year just growing great, but no blooms. <sighs> and it probably froze back pretty good in the winter this year didn't it yes completely yeah that that's probably the biggest reason it just literally had to start over from close to ground level are you feeding it you giving it fertilizer with any regularity all the time Okay, um, I would I, I kind of back off on the fertilizer because sometimes if you keep a plant too happy, all it wants to do is grow and not bloom. But uh, it, by this point, it's already put on a lot of growth coming back out. I would cut back on the fertilizing. I would let it get a little drier between waterings, and it should start producing buds very, very quickly. So Sometimes if a plant is just too happy, all it wants to do is grow a slight amount of stress on a plant, on a perennial plant like Esperanza, like Pride of Barbados, like Bogavillas, uh, letting them get just a little stressed, get a little bit dry between waterings, that many times will stimulate uh, a whole lot more flowers. Okay, I'll give it a shot. It'll be about two weeks before you see a very big change, but uh, by the time August 1 rolls around, I'll bet you get the prettiest Esperanza in the neighborhood. Okay, thanks. I'll try Keep it. me posted. Keep me posted, Greg. Okay. I want to know how it does. Thank you, sir. Okay. Um, gosh, I guess we better take a quick break here, Don. Richard will be up next, and we'll be right back with more gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. It's... Uh, Back to gardening here. Oh, it's just turning into a pretty, pretty morning out there. Sun's coming out. It's going to be warm this afternoon, but if you've got gardening to do, I hope you're going to be out, out, in the, uh, out in that sunshine pretty soon. Looks like it's going to be Richard and Liz and Audrey. Richard is up first. Good morning, Richard. Morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, uh, so I live in the Hill Country, and I'd like to say I've, I've applied a lot of your good advice, um, like applications that deep watering when I do but there's just some areas that every year um, they always uh, turn it almost the the grass the Bermuda grass almost turns like crispy before it it, it deadens out Uh so I I can't help but think that I have a thin soil line in these areas maybe there's a rock rocks underneath that but um, (laughs) I wanted to get your thoughts on if it's the same areas every year could I apply like lava sand to those areas to help with the, the moisture retention a lava sand and compost combination would be ideal. Lava sand you can certainly do this time of year. 
compost should be spring and or fall and that's going to help you know build up a lot of different things but lava sand uh, yeah, you can put that on this afternoon. You might want to do what Howard Garrett suggested at one point. He took an old golf club uh, or the shaft off of an old golf club, sharpened the end of it, and he uses it as a soil probe. Now, it's so dry right now, the soil may just be too hard, but when we do get good rain or if uh, you have watered thoroughly or something, you might go out and just you know poke that down in the ground and see it's, I think you're probably exactly right. You could easily have rock very close to the surface, or you can have what we call domes, little just projections of caliche that come up near the surface. But um, uh, short of you know taking a backhoe and digging out the boulders and replacing it, which is not practical, uh, lava sand and compost would be probably your two best things to, uh, number one, help hold a little moisture in the soil, and number two, help that Bermuda develop a little bit denser, thicker root system uh, so that you don't get this stress look uh, every summer. Okay. And uh, my next question was, where where can I buy lava sand, maybe not even in bulk, but 40-pound bags? Do you know of any locations? Most nurseries will carry it. Um, I'm trying to remember it. Maybe nature's creation that uh, we get it from, but uh, most any good nursery should have it. If they don't, they can certainly get it for you. What area of town are you in? You mentioned uh, Northwest? Yeah, Comal County. Oh, Comal County, Northeast. Um, probably try the plant house up in Kerrville. Not in Kerrville, plant house in New Braunfels. Um, I'm pretty sure they would have it. Uh, if you're over on the east side of town, I'm pretty sure Fanic Nursery would have it. Uh, central part of town, we certainly keep plenty of it here at Shades of Green. I imagine Rainbow has it, but... Uh, probably closest to you is probably going to be the plant house up there and uh if uh they don't have it they can certainly get it for you all righty well i'll give it a go and see see if i have any luck well you it it won't be overnight but i'd love to hear uh find <laughs> if if you're not a golfer find a golfing friend because everybody's got an old club or a busted up club or something like that and that little that little probe can tell you an awful lot without having to dig a hole that i'd i'd love to hear back from you at some point yeah, you know, before you taught me that you don't have to uh, aerate with a machine, you can do it with compost and uh, loosen up your soil, you know, uh, biologically. I used to <laughs> I used to aerate, and I'd be surprised every now and then it would just kind of hump up, and uh, and behold, there'd be a foot-wide <laughs> foot rock, but uh, sometimes the rocks are too big to, to dig up, so. Uh, they can be a little harder, and if that tiller happens to hang a tine in there, it can flip you right over those handlebars, so exactly. I'm glad you're doing it the safer, better way, Richard. You get out and have a great weekend, sir. I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Certainly. Uh, next in line is Liz. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Well, okay. Just worried about what I'm going to ask you, but hopefully you can help me. What? What is that? How can I help? Okay. Uh, when I moved into this house, I had four trees in the back. I have started noticing that there's roots uh, coming up on top of the grass, and uh -huh. some are pretty thick. And I'm just afraid to fall and trip over because I'm a senior. Uh huh. And um, I'm up in years. And I wanted to know is there a way that I can get rid of all these roots that seem to be coming up all of a sudden? 
well, the yeah, the roots aren't the roots aren't coming up. Uh, the root is anchored into the ground, but when a root grows, you know it grows just as much on the top as it does on the bottom. Back when that root was half an inch in diameter, it was totally under the soil. Now that that root is two or three inches in diameter, half of that is above the ground, and the other half is below the ground. So this is just what's natural when you have healthy trees with good root systems. Now it's more of a problem with ash trees and some different trees. Uh, hackberries are pretty bad about it but really the only solution is just to bring in some more soil and just kind of build that area up or else maybe create a ground cover bed put some stepping stones through there and uh so that you're not and i i understand you know they (laughs) believe me i've got plenty of spots in my yard which if i'm not walking carefully there's certainly plenty of roots to hang a foot on but uh i would either you know create a path through that area with some flagstones or something if you walk it often perhaps think about planting something like asian jasmine for ground cover instead of trying to grow grass in that area or, you know, if, if all else fails, you could bring in some more soil. I wouldn't use topsoil. I'd use a good garden soil. But realize that those roots are con- going to continue to grow. The roots are going to continue to get bigger, which means there's going to be more and more of a root up there on the surface of the ground. So and that's just a normal thing, though. The roots aren't rising up. The roots are just growing in diameter, and the result is having them a whole lot more prominent in the yard. Yeah, because they're pretty big. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I noticed it, but I didn't do nothing about it because I don't know that much about things like that. And then I said, well, now maybe even when you cut the grass, you know, the lawnmower will yeah. go over them, then it could damage something in the lawnmower too because they're pretty big. And oh, big. I. I have the same thing. I have some of my oak trees and a couple of hackberries in my front yard that uh, I simply can't mow as close to the trunk as I once did. But um, and and just from a practical standpoint, I just go back uh, as far as mowing. I'll go back with my line trimmer and cut down the grass in that area. But long term, whenever I get around to it, in other words, I will either just fill that area in with some more soil. Or else I'll just create a path through there with some flagstone. Believe me, I've got plenty of flagstone on my ranch. I'll create a path that I safely walk back and forth. Uh, but those roots are a natural thing. You can't remove them. Uh, you can cover them up if you like. But uh, it's just the natural thing. As a root grows, it gets bigger in diameter. And half of that, at least, is going to be growing upwards. And that's why it seems like they're rising up out of the ground. But they're really not. They're just getting bigger. So is there anything anybody can do, you know, like come and cut them? Or, no. Or if, you, if you cut the roots, you'll, if you cut your roots, you'll either kill the trees or the roots will just grow lot right back. Again, if you wanted to have somebody, you know, bring a couple of loads of soil in and actually raise the level of the soil, but those roots are going to continue to grow. They're going to be bigger five years from now than they are today. So it's, uh, it, it's just... something we have to deal with other than covering those roots up with more dirt we just have to create a safe area to walk through there because we short of cutting down the trees which would eliminate the problem and i know you don't want to lose your trees you want to have the shade out there but uh you you can't go in and you know cut all these roots off or your trees would probably fall over and certainly wouldn't survive very well Mm -hmm. 
Well, okay, okay. Let's see if I can get somebody to do those kinds of things. Yeah, I wish there were an, I wish there were an easy answer to it, but when you've got good healthy trees, <laughs> you're going to have good healthy roots, and uh, that's uh, one of them. Pretty yep. big, you know, really, really, really big. I, yeah. If you looked at my front yard, you'd see exactly the same thing. So that would be my suggestion, Liz. And Don, let's go ahead and get Audrey in here before we need to take a break. Good morning, Audrey. Hi, good morning, Bob. Um, good morning. Thank you for taking my call there. So uh, I just have a couple of uh, quick questions about, um, I had called you, I think, a couple of weeks ago about my okra, which is, mm-hmm. I've been watering it thoroughly. It's actually growing. But good. now how do I get it to flower or does it take, just kind of wait for the process? Is it out in full sun? It's in full sun, yes. Yeah, it will flower. <laughs> you just keep pouring the water to it. If you want to add a little garret juice, you want to add a little has to grow, you want to add some nutrient yes. to it, it will flower better and it will flower longer. But right now it just needs to reach a certain point of maturity. How tall is it now? Right now it's maybe two, I'm trying to see, maybe three inches. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's no, you're. It's, yeah, it's gonna be. It's gonna be three weeks or so, three four weeks from now. You're gonna have more okra flowers and more okra than you can eat. But uh, those plants Good. are gonna have to get up to where they're two or three feet tall before they start producing. Oh. But okra grows yeah. quickly. It's one plant that thinks this heat is a wonderful thing. So as long as you keep up with the water and the nutrition, you better be getting your gumbo recipes out because you're gonna have plenty of okra. <laughs> Yeah, and, and just quickly, and I'm sorry, the one plant that's growing really nicely, it's about a foot tall, but I have maybe four other ones that are scattered throughout the garden in full sun yeah. that are about two to three inches high. Okay, sure. so I'll keep, and I, yeah, the one um, that's about a foot high, I'd put some um, has to grow, which is working perfectly. So, okay. <laughs> well, use it on all of them. Okay, is it too late for me? Well, when do I plant? I need some, to plant my garlic and my potatoes and my green onions. Can I do those for fall? planting uh, uh not so much those are both gonna those are all gonna really be february things to do okay. especially with the heat we've got now uh howard yeah. garrett has had good luck planting garlic 365 days a year so if you want to plant some mm. garlic i think you're fine but you're not going to find the good little onion transplants this early and uh potatoes uh the soil's just awfully hot and uh, okay. the top of the potato would freeze when it gets colder this fall. So you're gonna, I'll give you lots of things to do in February. So you can plant some garlic okay. now if you just want to put something out. Certainly yeah. time to start planting your fall tomatoes, and they are in the nurseries this week. And if you want to plant some more bush beans, if you want to plant some more cucumbers yeah. or squash, uh, you can you can spend as much time as you want in the garden today. Oh, good. That was my last question was about the, uh, actually, cabbage, broccoli, and squash, and maybe some mustard greens and um, arugula. Okay, you can plant your squash. Uh, your broccoli, we need to wait till probably the middle of August. Your arugula and your mustard greens, we're going to need to let it cool down a little bit more, probably into September on those. Um, if you're ever over our way, and I don't know, Fanix may do the same thing, but we've got a great little handout we put together on the recommended planting times for all these crops, and uh, we'll get, be happy to give you a free copy. It tells you when to plant in both spring and the fall, and that way you won't be guessing at it. Excellent. Okay, and what time do you all close on Saturdays? Uh, Monday through Saturday, we're here from 9 until 4. Sundays, we're here from 10 until 4, so uh, up until 4 o'clock every day of the week. 
That is perfect. Okay. Well, you answered all of my questions. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Audrey. Appreciate the call. Uh, Goodbye. Don, let's get our last break of the hour out of the way, and we'll be right back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Boy, this day is going by in a hurry. I think it's just the quality of the calls. You guys are just super, super sharp today. Uh, looks like our next two callers are going to be Elaine and Reed. Elaine, you're first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I, got, I live out in Lavernia, so I'm in uh-huh. the sand. Mm-hmm. And my, my crepe myrtles have buried themselves over the years of wind blowing on them and all. Uh-huh. To dig them out, am I okay to use my pressure washer? I, yes, yes, and no. Uh, it kind of depends on how powerful your pressure washer is. Uh, I've got an old pressure washer that I mean, you could cut a two by four in half with that. So you're you're not going to have it up at maximum pressure. You've got a little nozzle on the end of it there that you can adjust, but uh, uh, a pressure washer is is just fine. But and, and I'm I'm not really joking about this. But take uh, take an old pine two by four, just a scrap you get off a construction site or something like that. And before you start blasting the soil away, just, you know, take the end of your pressure washer and just go back and forth over a piece of wood like that. And if you find you're making a real groove in it, then that would be too much for the roots. Just back the pressure off a little bit. But uh, I, you know, you're a sharp lady. You can, you can tell pretty quickly. But uh, um, I, I just would keep the pressure not cranked up to the max. Now, some pressure washers just don't make that much, but uh, uh, that much power. But uh, you, if it would be uncomfortable for you to, if you accidentally hit your foot, uh, then you probably need to back it off just a little bit. Okay. And uh, all of the little roots that have come out above the bigger roots, cut them off, leave them. I mean, they it's up to you. Uh, yeah, if if they come off, that's just fine. You don't have to necessarily get in there with your shears, although you certainly can if you want to. Uh, but those, uh, you know, the the ones that are in the upper three inches of soil, let's say, uh, those are surplus to the plant's needs, so don't hesitate to cut them out. Okay, that's what I'm going to be doing then. Well, don't. <laughs> don't do it in the middle of the hot afternoon. I, the nice thing is you can kind of hose yourself down periodically, but uh, um, do do it gradually enough that uh, it's still fun and not not just pure work. But uh, your crepe myrtles will love you for it, and the power pressure washer is a, a great way to go. Just uh, uh, just not maximum pressure on those roots. Well, I I have an uh, electric pressure washer and they're not okay. very powerful <laughs> okay uh, well then that should be the perfect tool for you yeah i got something that was safe for an old lady so that's what i need <laughs> to know uh, you don't sound like an old lady to me you sound very young at heart even if you like me have a have a few years experience in life we'll just put it that way so good luck with it let me know if you have any more questions uh, i actually do have one more and i just forgot okay. the name of the little flower. starts with a d Dianthus? Yes. Are they only available in the spring? They are. No, they are available just about any time. They're 
there are many different kinds of dianthus, and their happiest blooming season is when the weather cools off just a little bit. Uh, but dianthus are available out there. I look at five different colors of them when I go out visiting growers every week. So, uh, um, okay, I guess I need to come see you because I can't find them anywhere around. I'll, my I'll be honest with you. We don't keep a lot of them this time of year because they're just, you know, they're just not as pretty uh, during the hot, hot weather as they are when it cools off a little bit. But uh, call before you come. I'll put it that way. I'd have to walk out there and look and see what's out there this morning. But um, my choice would probably be more angelonia pentas periwinkles i think there's some things prettier than dianthus uh for the next six weeks at least okay thank you so much i appreciate your help yeah always a pleasure i appreciate the call thank you all right we'll finish up the hour with reed good morning reed good morning bob morning sir i've been running the little i don't know quarter inch pressure compensated tubing and i heard you talking about yours a double row of half inch or something and i was wondering if you could give me the 101 on how you set that thing up um it's uh the, the what i like uh because i'm where we have very hard water you may be you know where you don't have as much calcium in the water but i like the slightly bigger diameter um I, the, what I use is the, uh, it's by Rainbird. It has the emitters, one-foot centers on the hose. Each emitter puts out nine-tenths of a gallon per hour. And I just, again, in my garden, I will, like, on, on a row crop, like tomato plants or okra or something like that, I'll put one length of it down each side of the row and then just, you know, connect the ends so that if something gets kinked or blocked or something like that, I still get water throughout the whole system. Um, I'm not real big on using it. Uh, it. It just depends. Pressure compensated drip tubing, I think, is the most efficient form of drip irrigation. But I like it up on the surface where you can see it because too many times I've seen people wind up with shrubs and things dying that had some form of drip irrigation. Again, normally not the pressure compensated. It seems to work much better. But uh, I like to be able to see that I am indeed getting the ground good and thoroughly wet. So uh, I tend to keep it on the surface. I tend to maybe put a little bit of mulch or compost over the connectors, the L's and T's, and uh, always leave, you know, a little pigtail different places depending on how extensive your your network of things is so that you can go through and just open that up and flush it out with some regularity again depending on how much particulate matter you know you have in the water uh if you're over this way we actually drew out a bunch of different potential patterns and happily give you a copy of that but uh, okay. uh again in the garden I tend to like use a double row of it, maybe 12 inches apart, along my tomatoes, along my peppers, things like that, so that I'm getting the water spread out over a bigger area. And uh, again, keep it up where you can see it so you'll know if it does get clogged up in any way and you won't be looking at plant suffering. Are you using a, an inline filter on the incoming no. water? No, again, I just, uh, the filters clog so quickly that I just, they, they make a little figure eight. You just bend the end of it over, and it's a matter of three seconds to open it up, and then just turn the system on and let it blow anything out that's starting to accumulate. Um, the kind of little emitters that it has don't seem to clog badly. Mm, okay. 
All right. Well, I appreciate your appreciate your help. Well, it's always a pleasure, Reed. You get out and enjoy this wonderful day. Uh, everybody stick around. Our visit with Howard Garrett comes up next. We'll save about the last 30 minutes of the show for a few more phone calls here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. Oh, but hold off dialing for a few minutes. We'll have a little time uh in the next half hour that we can take a few more phone calls and of course we do this again tomorrow morning from 8 until 11 on plants but right now it's time for our visit with the dirt doctor good morning howard good morning how's everybody everybody is just getting into the swing of summer we uh seem to be vacillating back and forth between uh relatively pleasant uh 90 degree afternoons and unpleasant 103 degree afternoons but uh it's just Texas. It's uh, been it's been a pretty good summer so far. We're just sure ready for some more rain. Yeah, I thought we were going to have a little chance yesterday and today, but it doesn't look like it's going to materialize. I've been walking the dogs in the morning, and uh, uh, one of our other guys has too. And some of the mornings have been very pleasant before mm-hmm. it starts getting ripping hot in the afternoon. <laughs> so I recommend people. Get up early and take advantage of the nice early well, uh, weather. It's it seems to us it just seems that it's a matter of whether the sun's out or not. We've we've been blessed with some pretty good cloud cover starting out a lot of the days, sometimes lingering on into the afternoon. And when you got some clouds, the heat's not bad, but it's it's something of that radiant heat. When that sun starts hitting your skin, it starts getting unpleasant pretty quickly for for the people and the puppy dogs. Yeah, and plants burn. Uh, my plumeria is about to bloom, but it's uh, getting burned pretty good by the sun. That kind of surprised me a little bit. I think it's going to be fine. And it was mostly the older uh, leaves, but people need to be a little careful with some plants out there. I heard you talking about the uh, fall planting of uh, tomatoes and other things, and that giving them a little bit of shade is really a good idea. Oh, I think it's a good idea, and I think protecting them from the wind, whether, you know, we talk, we've talk we talked about it, the cold wind in the spring can really dehydrate them, but uh, these breezes, as good as they feel to us, they can be pretty dehydrating, too, and that's why I, I go ahead and put the tomato cages, and I love your new style of tomato cages. That that was a great stroke with the, uh, with the cattle panel material, but uh, I go ahead and wrap it with the insulate because it gives you the combination of Gives you air movement, but not the not the wind, and gives you just that little bit of protection from that intense sun. And I think I I don't know about up there, but we've had so many people that started out the summer with absolutely beautiful gardens, and then when those hundred degree days hit, uh, things didn't haven't been going quite as well. Yeah, same here. It's a really good production on the tomatoes, especially the, the small tomatoes. We've had a hard time uh, keeping up with uh, the picking. They're, they're still beautiful uh, tomatoes on the plants right now. So people that have been frustrated trying to grow the larger uh, tomatoes really need to give it a whirl. One of the ones that the tomatoes that's not that easy to find, I don't know if you've ever tried it or not, but... Uh, it's good for people that are just getting started sometime as a wild currant or sometimes hmm. sold as just currant tomatoes. Uh-huh. 
the tomatoes grow even smaller than the cherries and rising trobs and all the other uh, small ones. They grow more like grapes, clusters of grapes. And that's and what a lot of our growers, compact. yeah, and that's yeah. what our growers call them. They call them grape tomatoes. And uh, but yeah, talk about talk about a lot of fruit. Talk about a lot of picking. But uh, do you have a do you have any favorites in the grape tomatoes, or or do you all get them by a varietal no, I, name? I end up just planting as many different ones as I can find, and I'll, if I can find some transplants now, I don't know if the grower, if the uh, nurseries around here are as good as they are in San Antonio, having them ready <laughs> for the fall planting. So I'm just going to get whatever I can get. I think. Maybe I've just bitched at them enough over the years about not having the fall transplants ready in July, and uh, we actually got our first uh, fair shipments. Uh, one thing about our growers down here, and, and I can certainly understand it, we don't have nearly the selection. They grow, oh golly, 20, 30 different varieties in the spring, and uh, right now I've seen about five different varieties coming in, but... Um, it's it's just and the cherries you know whether it's the grapes or the red or orange or yellow those i just love because they just keep on producing they don't pay that much attention to the nighttime temperatures but people want to crop a good uh, larger tomatoes uh, it's it's important to get them in early when the nights are so you'll have your plants up to uh, an appropriate size when the nights are warm but not too warm so that we do get a good fall crop of, of big fruited tomatoes and they're just uh, you know the more the more i look at tomatoes in the grocery store <laughs> the more i understand why everybody wants to grow as many of their own as they can well i observed something interesting this year i let some of the plants just sprawl mm -hmm. i didn't uh, try to train them up into growing on the different devices that I've been playing around with. I just let them kind of sprawl on the ground. And in one one place, they grew up the side of my uh, shepherd composter and over onto the top and kind of sprawled <laughs> on the top of the compost. And those tomatoes produced better than any of the tomatoes. The only problem is harvesting them. And sometimes they'll be so low they'll be touching the ground or real close to mm -hmm. the ground. And you have sometimes have some a few pest problems and all but those tomatoes that i let sprawl looked like they were producing almost twice as many tomatoes as the wow. ones that were growing up and i have i've never noticed that before it may just be a fluky deal but it's uh, something for people to look at you have to kind of pull the uh, tomatoes around to find all of them hidden <laughs> in the sprawling tomatoes plus it's probably a little bit more dangerous about getting bitten by a black widow spider hiding in there when you do that as well. Well, they're in our part of the world, uh, maybe a little serpent of some sort, <laughs> which may be yeah. taking cover from the sun out there. But, uh, you know, just it, 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 whatever works. Everybody grows things a little differently. And some varieties of tomatoes, uh, you know, seem to lend themselves to sprawling where others tend to seem to do better with the support in a cage. I'll tell you the one thing that uh, uh, I'd have to discourage people from, and we must have a lot of transplants from uh, somewhere north of the Mason-Dixon line, because I get lots of calls about from people wanting to thin the foliage on their tomatoes. And mm -hmm. I tell them, yeah. you want to see sunburn on your fruit, you go ahead and thin that foliage. Uh, 
but uh, I've never seen any benefit from it. Have you? No, no, not at all. A lot of people try to uh, recommend re taking the suckers out, that little growth that mm -hmm. comes out of the axles uh, in the plant. And I'm there, I've tried it in the past. I didn't see any benefit at all. And like you, I think, if anything, it may cause some problems. Yeah, yeah. No, tomatoes are just the, the favorite the favorite plant in the garden, I think, by everybody. But a lot of people overthink it. And if you just, you know, choose good varieties and choose what grows. And I know you do the same thing. I always encourage people to keep a journal because in a given, in a given garden spot, some varieties are going to do better. I have problems with virtually every Roma tomato. I have blossom end drop problems on them, even when I'm pretty religious with the Epsom salts, and yet they're the only tomatoes in my garden that seem to have that problem. And uh, uh, Celebrity, just that's a champion. That just produces every year for me. And But I'll have a neighbor or something that planted something different and uh, felt like they got poor results from their celebrities and better results from others. So I just... I, Tell people, keep up with what you've planted, and every, I think you should grow a variety of plants, but if you have some that are just tried and true, always always kind of make those the backbone of your tomato patch. But uh, anyway, it's just fun to grow. Gardening is just a lot of fun, and I tell you, the quality of what you can produce is just so superior to anything you're going to find in the grocery store. Well, I think the uh, recommendation of planting several different varieties it goes for fruit as well if you if the weather goes one direction one variety will be favored if it goes another direction you know another variety will be uh, better so anytime if you have the room anytime you can plant as many different <laughs> varieties and experiment with some stuff uh, as you can i'll tell you something else interesting i'm observing this year too very few pest problems what mm -hmm. what are y'all seeing down there i'm seeing very few insect problems my tomatoes have very little early blight on them uh, yep. every time maybe it's just you know we've been doing the organic program for so long the soil's gotten healthier and healthier maybe that's the answer i don't know i think part of it was just kind of ideal growing situations mm -hmm. pretty much in may and june um we're starting to see more of the leaf-footed bugs those are always the biggest issue you know, in my garden, and uh, I don't have nearly as big a garden as I, I normally would, but uh, starting to see a few of them, have not seen nearly as many, and the spider mites have been late showing up this year. I think that has something to do with the weather being cooler, plus the fact that you spray regularly with seaweed and garret juice and those things, you toughen the leaves, and the mites just aren't that much of a problem, but grasshoppers are, grasshoppers are an issue down here. We're seeing an awful lot of grasshopper damage, and I can't say that I've seen a lot of damage from them, but one thing I put down to ask you about uh, this week is ants. I don't know when I have ever seen so many different kinds of ants. Ants I've never seen before. Like I say, I can't really ascribe, you know, a lot of damage to them. But my gosh, there's just so many, so many different ones seem to be showing up. And uh, uh, have y'all seen that? Yeah, we, that's the only uh, pest problem we've had. We've had the uh, company that I work with, pest control company, come out several times, and uh, like you're saying, seeing a lot of different ones. It, don't have any fire ants. We haven't had fire ants for 
well, since we've moved in and went organic here. But the, the small ants, acrobat ants, the odorous ants, the little, uh, the various small ants, they've been uh, all over the place using growth regulators and some borate-type products, gets them, and mm -hmm. gets roaches that, uh, as well. But you, you, we've had to treat for them. That's the one pass we've had. And there is an ant. I I don't know either, um, but there there's an interesting ant, and this is probably the second, maybe the third year. It looks like an oversized harvester ant. I I still like the old red harvester ants. I don't bother them unless they're right up in the garden because you know they're an important part of the food chain for you know a lot of different reptiles and things like that. But this is an ant that is a little bit more gold in color probably twice as big as a red harvester ant and they'll form a colony under a board under a rock something like that and you turn it over and they just come boiling out now knock on wood i've never had one bite me i don't know if they are prone to biting but the size of them and the number of them just it gets your attention like i said i i can't say i'm seeing a lot of damage but Anything that big seems like it has the potential to cause problems, but I I have no idea what they are, and I haven't. Uh, I, I need to talk to a good pest control. We, we've got uh, ABC's Chem Free Division down here, awfully nice people, and they've been pretty good. When I can drop a bug off to them that I've never seen, their entomologists will look at it and call me back. And I guess I need to do it with some of these ants because I'm sure I'm sure the pros know, but uh, it's it's just a totally new ant to me over the past year or two, and. Uh, um, they're just so darn big. <laughs> they get your it attention. It sounds like a carpenter ant on steroids is what it sounds like. It it really does, but compared to that standard red and black carpenter ant, they must be six times that big, uh, you know, volume-wise. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they I don't know probably, that I've seen that one here. Uh, maybe I'll, if I'm out turning things over this uh in the near future, I will. Uh, I'll try to snap a picture to them. Uh, hard to yeah, slow them down, great. but but uh, yeah, I think. And they're kind of a gold, golden brown color almost, and uh, uh, not not uniformly colored over there. I'll, I'll try to get a picture of them um, okay, and yeah, and send to good. you. Yeah, but I'm seeing a lot of cute little uh, animal lizards. In fact, tiny little lizards like. <laughs> a new crop was born here recently, and I'm seeing them all over the place, and I love love seeing that. We've got a lot of little snakes here and there. We've got some mm -hmm. uh, little water snakes. Haven't seen the big water snakes around the uh, koi pond lately. It's it's almost like they decided to go somewhere else. They d don't trust me now or something. But <laughs> the gambusias well. are almost getting to be overpopulated. I I pulled some out and took them to my office and put them in my aquarium inside, mm -hmm. and they're they're loving it, getting a, a regular feeding in there in that environment <laughs> now. But I need to take some more out. I've never seen so many. I think it's because the snakes maybe have uh, gone somewhere else that used to yeah, have that, them under control. It's interesting, but boy, you talk about a, a little fish that that breeds. I. Uh, I think they are actually live breeders. I don't think they lay eggs. I don't. That, that's just somewhere in my mind. But I guarantee you, you put half right. a dozen of them <laughs> in almost any in any little water source, and uh, all of a sudden, like you say, you'll 
you'll have a a large number of them out there. But now the the lizards especially are lots of fun. Uh, we're seeing lots of anoles. We are seeing uh, quite a few um, skinks, which are also you know they have that smaller, just brilliantly shiny. Uh, kind of coppery to even blue tail. We're seeing a lot of the fence lizards, the big old, you know, real scaly lizards. And uh, at night we see the geckos. Uh, they're, if you have a, a light out anywhere, uh, the geckos seem like they're hanging around that because uh, I guess that's where they grab the little moths and things that come into it. But uh, the, uh, and, I, and I saw something different, and I don't know whether it's an endpoint. We were talking about the little anoles, but... Uh, one of our growers, and I always feel good when I go into a grower's greenhouse and there are lizards everywhere because that tells me they're probably not using many pesticides. But there's a lizard that looks like an anole, but it's a little darker, sort of a brownish green, and I've never seen them turn colors. But when the males, when they do that courtship thing where they bob up and down and blow out their throat, the throat is a, an intense color. It's... Uh, it's not, not pink like your annals are. It's more of a rich, almost burgundy color. And uh, just just really interesting. I, you know, I, I enjoy reptiles. I have them for my entire life. But uh, we, we are really seeing an assortment of things in the garden this year. That sounds like an interesting one that I have not seen. So try to snap a picture of one of those for me. I think I've... I think yeah, I think I've actually got a video of that guy. I'll go back and look. Not a real good one, but I'll uh, I'll try to send that to you after the show today because it's just it's just a different color and it's just fun seeing something uh, new and different. One other question that I, I had a caller ask, and uh, you know, there's still companies out there selling systemic products, especially for rose care and things like that. For I guess mainly insecticides. I don't even I don't even look at that stuff anymore. But a caller said asked me how long I thought that that stayed in the plant, uh, what kind of residual would be in the sap of the plant. Now, obviously, they're not, unless they're you know, harvesting rove's hips or something like that, they're not going to consume them. But I didn't really have a good answer for that. Do you have any idea how persistent they are? It probably varies all over the place, depending on what product it was and what the plant is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know... Without spending a whole lot of money, how you could get it tested yeah. and find out if the stuff is still there or not. The only thing you can do, if you know that has happened before, is try to uh, kind of kick up the, your application of the organic things, foliar yeah. and soil uh, kinds of things, and uh, it, it will eventually get rid of it. But how you would know how long it would take, I, 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 I just don't know. Well, I'm reading the, a new book. Oh, go ahead. You know, you go ahead. I, I'm interested. I'm reading a, a new book. It's called Plastics. Maybe you and I already talked about it. It's called Plastics, uh, a, a Weird Love Story. or something. It's got a strange name. And it's the history of uh, uh, the development of different kinds of plastics. And I had no idea, even though my father-in-law, Judy's dad, was worked for Union Carbide and made styrene down uh-huh. in, uh, you know, they lived down in Victoria. Uh-huh. And it, that's one of the nastiest uh, of all. Oh, yeah. But it was talking about uh, the different, certain plastics have a much greater uh, ability to 
outgas and get in and contaminate soil and animals and water and you know all kinds of things and these forever chemicals now mm-hmm. a lot of people are starting to talk about more and more and some of those pesticides have those kind of chemicals uh, in them too and you know if you've got that going on if you're using those really nasty kind of things some of those chemicals probably will hang around in a plant for longer than other chemicals so it, again it just depends on what plant you're you've sprayed and, and mm-hmm. what kind of chemicals were, were used. I just don't think you know any more than that. Well, and and this caller, um, if I'm remembering correctly, not somebody I know, but somebody that's a regular caller, and they were more concerned about where the plants came from, what the growers had used on them, and I think it was roses in particular that they were looking at, and mm-hmm. just proud of the fact that their garden is totally organic, and just concerned about introducing plants into the garden that have that. And I told her, like you just said, that uh, in the soil we can, you know, do the finely powdered charcoal. We do the garret juice. We do all the things that tend to encourage the microbes that tend to break those things down. But in the plant itself, I just I didn't have a real good answer except that, uh, um you know, I wear gloves for the most part when I garden, just for protection more than anything else. But uh, for somebody that wants to buy some of the newest and most unusual things, and uh, uh, unfortunately we don't know. I know our growers, I know what they use and when they use it, and I avoid things that they spray. But somebody that's buying from the box stores and things like that, uh, I think it's a legitimate question because uh, oh, yeah. and. And, and the things that are truly systemic now, you know, the stuff that stays on the leaves, again, I really, I, and, you know, I think we both love molasses as a foliar spray along with seaweed and things like that. And anything that stimulates the microbes is going to speed up the breakdown. But these things that are actually absorbed into the plants, um, I can see how that's a concern, but I, I just, I don't know how you would measure and I don't know how you would know unless you knew the specific crop, knew the specific chemical, and knew a good research biologist somewhere along the way that had studied it. And uh, uh, it's just it's well, one of those things. the only things. way you'd know for sure is to get it tested. Yeah. And there's, there's very few companies around the country that test for toxins in plants and in the soil and that sort of thing. And it's expensive because if you don't know what you're looking for, yeah. the, the testing – uh, is extremely expensive if you right. can tell them that you want specifically to be looking for, uh, you know, glyphosate or 2,4-D or some specific thing. It would still be expensive, but it'd be a yep. lot less expensive. I think, in general, if you're using a total organic program like we recommend, you're probably uh, looking at, at at least one complete growing season mm-hmm. uh, to get the get the plant cleaned up but that's just a guess on my part i've never done yeah. the uh, testing on it but i'd say you need at least that one uh season also if people are concerned about that you're going to start hearing a lot more about this subject in the news by the way there's uh-huh. more and more people starting to talk about these chemicals um and talking about the tests that were done some years ago showing that it messed up the uh sex uh, mm-hmm. Of frogs, you remember? Uh, oh yeah. Congress. Yep. Well, they're now saying, well, if it could affect the uh, sexual hormones and situation in a frog, why wouldn't it 
why wouldn't it be able to affect that in people? And they're really starting to talk about that more. So I think that folks, maybe the pressure on people using those chemicals will start to grow now better than it ever has. And one thing if people are concerned about it, you might want to consider is to do what I'm doing almost, uh, well, about five days a week now. I'm doing a, a infrared sauna. Hmm. And and then I'm immediately taking as cold a shower as I possibly can after taking the shower. Plus the fact that people that recommended that treatment to me, and there's a lot of people getting into it now, recommend that when you're taking that really hot shower, uh, sauna and sweating, you need to exercise a little bit before you go in the sauna, sweat mm-hmm. like crazy. I do... Uh, it's a little over 100 degrees. It's supposed to go to 170, but I don't think mine gets that uh-huh. hot. But at 110, you'll sweat a lot, and you're supposed to use a towel and wipe the sweat off while you're sweating. That's interesting. Those toxins are coming out of your body, and it really makes a difference. I take charcoal, and I do a bunch of other related kind of things. But if people are interested in it, there's plenty of info about that that whole technology on the internet. It's one of the things that you can get some good advice from the internet. There, yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, not nobody's as good as DirtDoctor.com, but there are some good sites. And uh, I know my friend Rhonda, Rhonda's Nature's Way. She actually, and I just haven't had time to to go. She tells me to come give it a try, but she does a foot bath detox that uh, you mm-hmm. you you know submerge your feet in. Uh, in a water solution, and I'm not sure what she puts in there, natural things, of course, but that tend to draw a lot of toxins, you know, directly out. And, uh, boy, you look at the at the crud that's left over after doing this sometime. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Back to the reproductive thing, and there was an excellent uh, one on NPR a while back talked about the sexual problems that some of the pesticides... Uh, uh, cause, but uh, I'd also remind everybody what Diane Baines brought us the information on some of the studies on genetically modified foods and genetically modified diets had a huge impact on mammals studied as to uh, reducing the litter size, reducing the health of the offspring. So it's not just things in the garden, it's things that are on the vegetable aisle of the grocery store. Just one more reason to avoid GMOs wherever you can. Yeah, it's uh, buyer beware. You just need to do is uh, clean uh, uh, diet and living as you possibly can. It's why clean water, having filter systems around the house and taking as much out of the water. And, you know, if you're like me, if you happen to have gone to Camp Lejeune and gotten poisoned right. by the water there, it's an, even, it's an even bigger issue. It's kind of how I got into all this stuff. Oh, absolutely. And and you were talking about the testing, and uh, I don't know anybody is doing very much of the soil testing, but we're seeing a little bit more. Unfortunately, it's funded by some government agencies, but uh, doing a little bit more water testing to see what is all what is in some of our groundwater and uh the groundwater districts don't have the money because it is so expensive but uh uh some of the environmental agencies both state and national have come up with some funding to look at uh at, at toxins in our groundwater specifically some pesticide things so there is some more research being done 
uh, on that, and hopefully that will make it into the mainstream media one of these days. I think we're moving in the right direction on all that stuff. We just need to keep up the pressure <laughs> and keep talking about it, which maybe we can do in a week or so again. Here. I think that would be a great idea, and in the meantime, we'll grow as much of our own food as we can. We won't have to worry about what's in the grocery store. But, Howard, you're just there a wealth of information, and we just so enjoy getting together on a weekly basis. And uh, you guys have a good week. Enjoy your garden, and we'll do it again soon. Enjoy those healthy gardens. Thanks. See you later. Thanks, you. Thank you, Howard. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. His website, dirtdoctor.com, by far the best on the Internet uh, as far as good information that is very, very relevant, very applicable here in the San Antonio area and pretty much throughout the uh, the whole region. Of course, general organics are, are applicable nationwide, but dirtdoctor.com will tell you a lot about plants and gardening right here in the area that uh, most of you guys are listening in. Um, we need to get a break done here, and then we will uh, have time for a few more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Looks like Clint and Liz are my next two callers. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? It's going along out there. Still got some clouds around, so it's not too uh, unbearably hot yet, but I'm sure it'll be a warm afternoon. Oh, I'll be ready to cook, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes, sir. What's going on with you? On the uh, vinegar, vinegar orange oil. Uh, spray. I'm assuming that it's not going to hurt a well-established tree with the dead woody bark, but anything oh, no. new, green bark, that's a different story. Yeah, green bark's a different story, but woody bark, no. If you've got poison ivy or whatever else uh, growing up on it, you're perfectly safe. If you're just wanting to burn the foliage off root sprouts, you can do that, too, because it's not systemically absorbed into the plant, but uh, no, woody Woody trees, you've got no concerns. And, you know, I wouldn't, obviously, the the things we shouldn't even have to mention, but don't do it on a windy day where the drift could go somewhere else. But, no, I've, I've more than once had poison ivy or something like that growing up that uh, needed to be knocked back, and it doesn't bother the tree at all. So I guess that would be a good thing for the oak tree uh, root sprouts, maybe during the wintertime when the uh, thing Augustine uh, is dormant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you uh, again. It's not absorbed in any way, so you can certainly burn the foliage off of it. I'm, I'm just increasingly amazed at how resilient those blasted things are. I've got an area that's probably I don't know eight feet by twenty feet or fifteen feet at least that uh, I made a determined effort to take out every one of the probably thousand root sprouts that were out there, and I'll be darned if if I didn't walk away or go away for a couple of weeks and come back, and I swear they're as thick as they were before. Oh, I got one tree that's just bound and determined to uh, produce as much as they can. Well, and, you know, it tells us that that particular tree, there's something stressing that tree, and it's probably drought. It's probably something that we can't do anything about. But um, I, And I don't know that for a fact. It may be just genetically that some trees are a little bit more prone to it. But uh, in any event, I wouldn't hesitate. It's, you know, it's not going to kill them back to where they won't come out again, but you'll sure knock the foliage off of them with the vinegar and orange oil mix. I'll give that a shot. Getting back to my avocado trees, and uh, I didn't notice what my son did with the uh, Chinese plum tree and mm-hmm. uh, one of the persimmons. 
he took a picture of the fo- uh, of the leaves. They come back as a fungular problem. So I'm thinking that kind of makes sense why it slowly dies back. I, it, you know, it, it's just hard to say. The the leaf on a loquat or Chinese plum is just such a totally different, and it's a rough leaf. I can see where fungal spores would, and, and we do have lots of different fungal problems show up occasionally. On the slicker avocado leaf, although it's got, you know, a little bit more fuzz to the backside, uh, I'm I'm not sure what we're missing, why they're turning out to be difficult for some of us, including me, to grow them as well. And other people seem to do very well with them. And we had a, we had one in the neighborhood where the nursery is that, golly, that, that tree was must have been 20 feet tall and 10 or 15 feet wide. Unfortunately, died out with a really cold winter. But there's some of them out there that are just super hardy and others just seem to struggle. So... I'd look forward to some of the experiments you're doing to see if we can come up with a better regimen for establishing them and growing them well. Well, I was uh, always taking your advice on the newly planted and hitting it with water as many times as I can while I'm outside. And I wonder if that's contributing to the problem or the fungular problem. I wouldn't do it in the in the evenings when the trees aren't going to dry off, but uh, um, mornings I, I think that's a – I don't – I don't think that really caused any problem at all. Wet foliage at night, that's a known setup for having a few more fungal problems because the number of fungal spores in the air goes up substantially after nightfall. But uh, I think I'd avoid it, you know, in the evening. I'd always tell people to, you know, try to give the plants time to dry off before dark. But I tell you, with the low humidity and the high heat, uh, they sure dry off in a hurry. One of my my avocados turning yellow after a bunch of black spots appeared all over it so i hit um last weekend hit it with some i soaked it down with some corn water tea mm-hmm. and then i found another fungal uh, organic uh, fungal spray that I do on a daily basis that seemed to have good reviews i don't know how much you can trust online reviews anymore <laughs> right i'm giving that a try on a daily basis for the next two weeks i will see hopefully that stops the problem well i you know again really appreciate your you're looking into it this carefully to see if we can figure out uh you know what what we need to do because hopefully if we're back into an el nino situation hopefully we'll be looking at milder winters for the next two or three years and sure it would be nice to get some of those trees regrowing especially some of those mexican varieties that typically will take a bit of cold, not the kind of cold we've had a couple of times, so take a bit of cold without damage. So I just love avocados. <laughs> a, no. I've been fighting this for years. I've yet to eat an avocado, so I'm getting kind of aggravated. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep up the good work and, um, you know, just keep making those observations, and uh, we'll figure it out. Hopefully. All right, well, I sure appreciate the time. You get out and have a great weekend, Clint. It's always good to hear from you. Thank you, sir. All right, uh, Don, I'll tell you what. Let's get our last break of the show out of the way so that uh, we'll know how much time we have left, and then we'll start with Liz. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, we're back to gardening. Golly, how did this year get 
going by so quickly. About eight minutes left in the show. We're going to talk to Liz and then hopefully have time to talk to Elaine. Good morning, Liz. Are you there, Liz? Uh, Bob, are you there? Hello? I'm right here. Good morning. I hear oh, you loud okay. and clear. Yeah. All righty. Um, let's see. I I caught you at the tail end of your show on uh, last Sunday. Um, and uh, let's see. I'm still digging up a lot of the Malta star thistle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've got about 2,000 square feet of it. Um, and what's left behind is bare soil. Yeah. So um, I would, you know, of course, I'd like to have wildflowers or a little blue stem or, or something in there. But um, but I called a seed company and he said, one thing that might grow now is a German millet. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people call it foxtail millet. Right. And it, it's used as a cover crop. But. Um, do I want to do that and then mow it later on, or uh, is there some other solution to keep unwanted stickers and seeds from coming up in this bare dirt and all? Well, I the best natural pre-emergent I've ever found is compost, and uh-huh. um, you know if that's not an unreasonably large amount of area. I mean, if it was, you know, 20 acres or something, it would certainly not be practical. But my, and I haven't found a good control on, on Malta star thistle. That's just the nastiest little import we've had in a while. But most all of the other uh, sticker burrs, the pain in the grass as we call them, I pretty much eliminated from a section of my yard that was very, very infested uh, with a fall application of just good quality compost. So I, that I would certainly tell you that that will improve the quality of your soil for whatever you want to plant in there, be it a permanent grass or be it a cover crop. Um, if it was on a slope, I would tell you absolutely do it, just on the chance that we're going to get good rains and we don't want to have erosion problems. Flatter area, it's strictly, you know, up to you. Just hot summer's tough to get anything started. If Douglas King is suggesting this, uh, th- those guys have great experience, and they, I-, I found their information to be pretty accurate. But it's something I've never grown before. It's something I don't think would be hard to eliminate because it is an annual grass, and uh, I don't think it would be hard to get rid of if you decided you didn't care for it. But I sometime this fall, whether or not you have something growing there, I'm sure going to recommend a half an inch compost over that area as being the best I've ever found for pre-emergent weed control. All right, I'll do that. I just, you know, all the bare soil over there. It, if I don't get something growing in it, I wind up with king wrench blue stem. And so, that's the last thing we want to see in there. But yeah, uh, no, if you decide to give it to give the German millet a try, please let me know what you think of it. I'll be very interested in uh, in hearing back from you. It's just. You know, you could you could plant Bermuda now, but just the watering is going to be the issue. And if you were going to do that, or in fact, anything you're going to plant, I probably wouldn't do the whole thing. I'd do it maybe in quarters so that you can take a little intensive care of the portion that you've planted and then move on to the next instead of all of a sudden having a big area you're trying to water on a regular basis. And uh, I think it'd be easier to do in two or three little pieces than all at once. Well, this whole area is is my blue bonnet patch. Uh-huh. And um 
so that's why I'm hand pulling and sure. digging sure. the the stickers. Um, but okay, I'll I'll give that a try. Uh, quickly, last week you recommended a certain cedar oil for preventing chiggers. Yeah, but I forgot yeah. what what. Yeah, it's by Nature's Nature's Creation, and they simply call it Cedar Repel, R-E-P-E-L. All righty. Well, thank you so much. Love your show. I sure appreciate that. Thank you, Liz. Appreciate it. And, uh, Don, let's get Elaine in here to finish out the show. Good morning, Elaine. It's the same Elaine that called earlier. <laughs> well, welcome back. I forgot to ask about my lemon tree. I cover it every fall with a portable greenhouse thing uh-huh. and then i open it up when the bees appear in the spring and i probably have 75 plus lemons on it this year brag Never brag brag that. good for you I, i'm going from 10 to 75 or so but they're sun burning should uh-huh. i cover it with a sunscreen kind of thing I whatever you can um you know just good old shade cloth i'd use maybe 30 percent shade cloth um, even things like the insulate that we use for wintertime protection, it's a little bit denser. You might have a little bit more problem with it blowing, but if you could create just a very simple framework to uh, drape some kind of uh, shade cloth over, and it might even be almost like a pup tent. I, I, you know, not real, can't see where you're trying it, but no, I think about a 30% shade cloth would be a real benefit to you. Okay, and I'm watering this thing like every other day for an hour plus. Is that too much water? I if I judge by how the tree's doing. It sounds to me like the tree's doing very well, so I'm never going to mess with success. Okay, well, these lemons are golf ball plus size already, so I don't know. I know they won't be this size like normal because there's just so many on there, but mm-hmm. I can live with that. Okay. Well. I, you know, it's, well, good question it was, and uh, we'll be looking for uh, Elaine's lemonade stand (laughs) come the late summer months. So, anyway, I do appreciate the call. Everybody else, uh, it's time for uh, the Home Improvement Show with Martin Bama coming up right after the news here on KTSA. We'll be doing gardening again tomorrow morning from 8 until 11, and then, of course, from 11 till noon, Dr. Dan Kirby's show, Your Pet's Health. Uh, It's such a pleasure to be able to sit in from with Dan and learned so much from him. So anyway, we appreciate you leaving it here on KTSA. Uh, remember, tomato plants are in the nurseries. Time to get them in the ground, but do plan to give them a little protection from the direct sun, from the wind to get them started. But hopefully you have the best tomatoes early in the neighborhood. See you again tomorrow right here on KTSA Radio.